What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. <laughs> we repossess this ball for every single black boot that never made it home. Every brother and sister stolen from Mother Africa to Jamestown, Virginia, way back in 1619. We give this gold to our people. You feel that? That was the late Chadwick Boseman in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, Spike's other 2020 release, his filmed version of David Byrne's American Utopia. We also got new films from Sofia Coppola, Charlie Kaufman, Kelly Riker, David Fincher, plus five new ones from Steve McQueen. 2020 may have been a really crummy year, but there has been no shortage of great films. This week, we continue our top 10 of 2020 countdown with our five favorite films of the year. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. No top 10 roundtable for us this year, Josh, but our regular roundtable guests, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and Tasha Robinson from Polygon and the Next Picture Show podcast will be joining us virtually to share their number one picks of the year later in the show. I told them to meet me at this little house party I've got planned in London. Music, dancing, there's going to be goat curry. Pretty epic. (laughs) Well, we'll have to see. I, I've heard that might not be entirely Tasha's scene, but I don't know. We'll, we'll find out when she gets here. We will indeed. Before we get to our top five films of 2020, let's quickly recap our six through 10 picks. Josh, start us off. Your number 10 on down. All right, 10, I have Mangrove from Steve McQueen, the Small Axe Anthology's first installment. My number nine is the documentary, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Number eight, the 40-year-old version, um, a comedy drama from New York City playwright Rada Blank, who writes, directs, stars, and makes me laugh quite a bit. Number seven is The Assistant from way earlier in the year from writer-director Kitty Green. And my number six is Dick Johnson is Dead, Kirsten Johnson's love letter of a documentary to her father. My number 10 is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, starring Viola Davis and the late Chadwick Boseman. Number nine, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the new film from writer-director Charlie Kaufman that stars Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons. At number eight, The Trip to Greece, the fourth and final installment in that trip series, directed by Michael Winterbottom and starring Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. At number seven, I've got Mank. From David Fincher about screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz and the making of Citizen Kane. And at number six, a documentary pick, an unconventional documentary pick of my own, The Truffle Hunters, which, yes, is about the men and their dogs who hunt the Alba Truffle, the elusive and very expensive and apparently delicious Josh Alba Truffle, which you can find in northern Italy. We did talk in great detail about all of those choices on part one of our top 10 of 2020 countdown. You can find that show over at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also see our lists at filmspotting.net slash lists. Michael and Tasha are going to come back. We're going to get to, I'm going to call it the consensus between the four of us, top two films of the year, because there's a fair amount of crossover. We didn't maybe all put them in exactly the same slots, but it's close enough. And we'll also hear the other movies that round out their top five of the year. But to get us started is a longtime friend of the show, formerly of Film Spotting, 
SVU with Matt Singer and the critic for BuzzFeed, Allison Wilmore. This is her choice for the number one film of the year. Hey, film studying team. Uh, it's Allison Wilmore here from the late film studying SVU podcast, hoping I'm slipping this voicemail in with enough time under the wire. My favorite movie of the year is Baccarat, the uh, greatest neo-Western, anti-colonialist, most dangerous game variant that you'll see this year, um, and also just a kind of incredible, exhilarating, disturbing work that I feel keeps uh, showing me new things the more I kind of uh, think on it and revisit it. So definitely a film for 2020 uh, for many reasons and one worth checking out if you haven't gotten to it yet. All right. It's been a tough year, guys, but hopefully the next one will be better. I mean, nothing would. So I don't know about you, Adam, but I am still wrestling with Baccarat <laughs> and I, I saw it, caught up with it because mm-hmm. I had seen it on so many lists, including Allison's. Um, and it was kind of on my radar all year long and one I had to catch up with. And sort of squeeze it in here at the end. So maybe not an entirely fair viewing. I, I'm glad I had the experience. I'm just not entirely sure what sort of experience I've yeah. had, which maybe you can sense from Allison's voicemail there. Um, sure. It's it's just it's it's wild. It's it's maybe insane. It's I, I think my first viewing was I really was intrigued by all of those ideas and genres that were coming at mm-hmm. you. Um, but on a first sitting, like they never it, it didn't like really hit me directly in the experience. I, I almost mm-hmm. needed, there are two different groups here. There's this small town, um, this village really. And then there's this, this group of, um, I guess they're Americans who come for, we won't give too much. We won't spoil too much, but neither of those, I needed more context for both of those sections of the film for it to register for me as anything more than like this intellectual experiment, I guess, which is kind of how I did appreciate it on that level. I I can say that. No, I I did as well. I think I described it this way for our listeners who support us on Patreon. We did some bonus content and I mentioned Baccarat as being basically Battle Royale but mixed with The Seven Samurai. And there's probably seven other films you could merge Mm -hmm. with this movie. It does feel truly uniquely its own and that's why it's worth seeing but it's also this weird kind of mashup hybrid of other types of movies we've seen before so i am curious to hear what our listeners think about background came out a long time ago right earlier in the year yeah i think so and we just caught up with it but maybe as it is appearing on more lists like allison's in that number one slot more people are experiencing it and maybe more people can explain to us josh what we miss definitely worth seeing not going to make our top tens definitely not going to come up here in our top five why don't you go ahead and get us started all right so you heard me mention there that earlier in my top 10 i had Dick Johnson is Dead, number six. Actually, right after it, I have another film that deals with dementia. Um, In Dick Johnson is Dead, that is the struggle that uh, her father, Kirsten Johnson, the director, uh, Dick Johnson is facing. And they explore that in a very unique way um, in that documentary, but a very different way than my number five pick explores it, Relic. Uh, This is a horror film, and in her directing debut, Natalie Erica James, she basically chooses to confront dementia via metaphorical horror. So the main character is an adult daughter played by Emily Moore 
Mortimer, who visits her aging mother, played by Robin Nevin, in rural Australia. And this is a on a family estate, a family home that's been held for generations. And uh, as the movie goes on, the walls in this home gradually disintegrate. Um, it's it's a very you know obvious symbol for what's happening to her mother. Um, but the movie, the just the way the movie handles this metaphor is delicate, um, creepy, scary, unsettling, frightening, and it captures all of the emotions that you know you would have in the mundane experience of an aging parent with mm-hmm. dementia. It, it it makes dementia demonic and literalizes that, which is, you know, how it can feel even if you're not in this sort of heightened scenario. And so I just think that's a strong, that's such a strong visceral connection to make. And Natalie Erica James uh, just handles it so expertly. Her command of the genre here is, is astonishing. And I think why Relic landed on my list and this high is its ending, which I am not going to give away but this is where you know you might be saying especially if horror isn't for you oh i get it i get the metaphor i can imagine what happens um i don't need to see it you know um but this ending manages to involve body horror unconditional love in a way that was completely jarring um, of a piece of the horror genre, but also incredibly moving. And that was kind of like when the movie concluded that way, I was like, okay, this is one that's uh, not only am I appreciating, but probably going to end up sticking with me to the end of the year. And indeed here it is. Number five. Do you know where you were, mom? I suppose I went out. What's this? I was on the property when your grandfather inherited it. His mind wasn't there in the end. You can't put Gran in a home. She can't live on her own anymore. She has to be watched. Everything all right, Gran? I thought this was where it got in. Who? Whoever was coming into the house. So again, we will not get into spoilers and ruin the ending, but Relic, knowing it was going to make your list, did end up being the last film I crammed in Oh, great! before recording this top 10 with you. And I am not as big of a fan of it as you. I definitely wish I had watched it under different circumstances where I maybe Josh wasn't watching it with the attitude, I have to confess, a little bit show me something. (laughs) You know, it's top 10 time. Really give me something here. It's a slow enough burn. And it feels for a while like a very extended tease in terms of the way it plays with the different horror tropes that I think are fairly conventional, even as everything you're saying in terms of the metaphor of the, the house and how it ties back to her dementia and the disease. It all makes sense. But the knocking in the night and the elderly people making devious faces and one that actually did jar me a little bit, but also I thought was kind of hilarious was a moment where. Emily Mortimer's character goes out to confront her mother as she is walking around the house at night and she seems to be moving away from us. Oh, this is a great shot. All of a sudden, all of a sudden her face emerges out of her hair. It's this cousin it moment. And it turns out she wasn't walking away from us. She was, she was walking backwards and her face is towards us. It is both simultaneously absurd and hilarious and horrifying. So I guess I I will give it. Yeah, I'll give it that. But the ending is where, the movie does make it all come together. And I had 
read your letterbox comment where you mentioned that it might be a candidate. The movie might have a candidate for most moving moment of the year. I didn't know that it was going to come at the end of the film. And I'm watching the whole movie going, Josh, where is it? Where are the goods? Because there's, there's a scene between mother and daughter in the garden, which is kind of emotional, but not really. And it, it wasn't hitting me. And I just thought, okay, I can't wait for Josh to explain this to me. And then you get to the end and the feeling of creepiness and discomfort, but also compassion that's being exchanged in that moment really is something without that ending. And of course, in retrospect, it seems like the only logical place it could go. I'm not sure that Relic would have had even the impact that it ultimately did on me. So I absolutely understand why this movie appeals to you. I will mention that not only do we have Dick Johnson is dead and Relic, but we also have another 2020 movie that is about dementia, and that's The Father. I don't think you've had a chance to see it yet, Josh. Stars Anthony Hopkins, going to come out in 2021, but is technically a 2020 movie. Hopkins is definitely going to be up for Best Actor, and it is an interesting trend piece waiting to happen if it hasn't happened already, because in it you get, starting with the first one we saw, Dick Johnson is Dead, this take on dementia that reflects its main character, its subject, right? Dick Johnson, where it's not that Kirsten in any way backs away from or tries to hide from the horror of dementia or is afraid to get into the messiness of it. But the film, as you've said, is also really playful and really pleasant, even in a way that matches Dick Johnson and his personality. And then you get to the father, which is the one I saw second. And Anthony Hopkins character is much more intense and much more aggressive and angry and does not deal with his disease in the same way that someone like Dick Johnson does. But again, it comes back to who they are fundamentally as mm. core people. The movie, I think, would suggest. So it it amps up the intensity and becomes more of a nightmare, whereas Dick Johnson is dead is more of the dreamlike version of dealing with this disease. And then you get to Relic, which, yeah, just extends it into the full-on horror, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is no longer a nightmare. It is, as you said, dementia as demonic. So three different films, three very different objectives, I think, and very different in terms of their formal elements, too. And all are worth seeing. I'm not as big of a fan, maybe, of The Father as others, but it's certainly worth seeing for the performance and also the structure, which reflects the mindset of the character. So all three movies doing something similar, Josh, I think in reflecting that main character and their spirit, but taking it in very different directions. Yeah. I think I joked on our winter preview show, if I, whether or not I was ready for a third movie on this topic. And it turns out as the deadlines for our ballots and stuff um, approached and we had dozens of movies to watch i did a little self-care and was like no yeah i'm not ready because i i talked you know i talked on our dick johnson his dad review about my own grandfather and just the memory issues he's struggling with and um you know i was grateful to have movies like this to to help me process that experience but i think after going through those two processing Mm -hmm. i'm gonna i'm gonna hold off a little bit yeah on the father You've got some time. We will probably give that movie a full review. I can't remember off the top of my head now whether it's February or a January release, maybe February, and we'll probably have time to give it some attention, Josh, if you are recovered by then. My number five movie of the year is a documentary. It's The Painter and the Thief. And 
Really, I am so predictable, aren't I? I am so consistently drawn to movies about art and artists. And as I was putting my notes together, I'm looking at my list, Josh, and I'm like, okay, I've got blues performers. I've got a Hollywood screenwriter. I've got actor comedians on a road trip. Whatever is happening, and I'm thinking of ending things, which we talked about, it It certainly evokes a sort of stream of consciousness creation of characters and story, and even Truffle Hunters, that documentary, my number six, there's this sense of an art that could die with these characters. And you know what? I've got more to come, including this one here at number five. I was in from the opening security cam footage, two paintings being stolen, I think in daylight by two men and it suggests a kind of true crime element that really at some point is abandoned for this more personal story of the person who painted those two paintings and her relationship with one of the men who stole one of those two paintings that artist she's a czech artist named barbara kisilkova she for her initially anyway it seems it's not just about the value of the art as a commodity to her, even though they are her most valuable paintings, it's more like something has been ripped from her. A part of her has been taken from her, and she is interested in getting it back. And at some point, she she abandons mostly that notion and instead gets involved in trying to understand if she can't bring the painting back, at least maybe she can understand what led this man, Carl Bertel Nordland, to take it. She processes her pain by confronting him, which does open up more wounds for both of them, but does also lead to, I think, some transformation. And we've talked on the show about the standout scene in the documentary where Carl Bertel sees himself as she sees him, a painting of him that she has done. And it's it's powerful, the emotional reaction it elicits it might be the best case or part of a great case for why art really does matter why any of us watch movies even josh to see ourselves reflected to see ourselves in a new revealing or illuminating way but the overall construct of the doc is also what makes it special it's not just about benjamin Ree, a norwegian director showing us who carl bertel is as barbara sees him or this relationship as she experiences it from her point of view, we get the reverse as well. The doc shows us events and interactions from his perspective and how he sees Barbara, how he sees their relationship and even himself. And I read part of an interview today with Ree where he said, it's about how we tell stories because it's me with a camera watching them and they are watching each other. So there's a meta perspective that gets in. And I like the idea of people watching the film thinking about how we tell stories and how we tell each other's stories and reflect on how we see and present each other. So inadvertently here between both of us, this seems to be a recurring theme, Josh, in the best films of 2020. Yeah, I, I like that shift in perspective. I think that's kind of like the, um, the, the special card that the painter and the thief played for me, at least to suddenly, you know, elevate it. It's interesting that we have like a a theme that's recurring in our pick circling around these questions of documentary techniques yep. and practices. And I think the one thing I wondered about the painter and the thief is just, you know, how much of this, and I, I'm trying to find the right word that's non-judgmental, so it's not manipulation, but how much of this is um, be 
is the filmmaker more involved <laughs> than than we might expect? And I don't know that Re was necessarily, but there are a couple of scenes. I think of the one where, um, and we see this from both perspectives, I think, where Bertel Nordlin is planning to go into a rehab facility and then instead he, he barges into Kisilkova's studio. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there was just something about that where you're, again, it was kind of like um, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. is like, how did they how did they really get this? You know, it's Uh it's like your antenna goes up. And again, I'm not saying if that was something that was experienced once and then they revisited in some way that that was wrong, but it goes back to this question we've been asking each other, you know, how upfront does a movie have to be about those tactics? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's complicated here because I don't know, you've done more background reading on how the film was made. So you might know more than me. I don't know, you know, these may have been perceptions I've picked up on that are completely off. Um, but it was just, here's another documentary where that question is raised um, mm-hmm. that that I thought about while watching The Painter and the Thief. Yeah, and I didn't get a chance to really read too closely that interview. I'll link to it in our show notes for this episode if others are curious about this topic. But one line that caught my eye that I think does fit within this scheme we're discussing is the fact that at one point... They're talking about the decision to make the movie, to go ahead and grant read the access. And they had a discussion, they being Barbara, the painter, and Carl Bertel, the thief. And he says that one of the reasons why he wanted to move forward with the movie, she only wanted to do it if he was willing. He wanted to do it partly because he wanted her art to get more exposure, Hmm. right? Not in a crass or commercial sense, but just really felt like, she deserved that. And that that if this movie helps bring more attention to her work, then that's a really valuable thing. But then you think about that even, again, not in a way that I think is tarnishing anything with the film. He's aware of that scene to scene. He's so aware he, that so he, he has a goal So he's kind of a producer at that point. You know, he's, a sub, I mean, he's subject and producer. <laughs> you in, know, a sense, in a sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. That movie, The Painter and the Thief, is available, I think, for rental on most platforms. But also, if you have a Hulu subscription, you can see it there. All right. So my number four film, Adam, uh, one of the great things about 2020 for me is I finally got a chance to meet uh, Portuguese director Pedro Costa. So, you know, somewhat of an embarrassing admission for a cinephile, but just one of those um, filmmakers, uh, global filmmakers that I hadn't had a chance to experience yet. And his film, Vitalina Varela, came out. It's one of these, this seems to happen every year, Adam, where um, you know, a fairly well-received foreign language film is released elsewhere outside of the States, like late in one year, comes to the U.S. like January, February, and is kind of in that weird middle ground. Well, what year is it? And gets forgotten. By the end of the year, it was released in the States. So um, that seems to be the case with Vitalina Varela. I hope it does get more attention uh, just on its own merits, let alone as a Pedro Costa film. Uh, you mentioned how Relic was kind of slow burn for you. This is this is you know very much almost like slow cinema, even though there is... Oh, yeah. You know, that's the style, but there is a narrative here, and um, it's basically focusing on this woman from Cape Verde who is an immigrant to Portugal. She goes to reunite with her husband. They've been separated for many years. He went ahead to work in Portugal, but when she arrives, she learns that he has just died a few days earlier. Um, talked about, you know, the the woman, the non-professional actor playing Vitalina Varela. She shares the name um, when we did our ballot show, our CFCA ballot show, because I think she gives a wonderful performance, a real performance as the title character here, obviously drawing on her own life 
And um, yeah, just, you know, along with Truffle Hunters, this was the most painterly film of the year for me. I just loved the Mm -hmm. imagery and the cinematography. Um, and I think what Costa is doing here, you know, it's 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 slow cinema, but also kind of anthropological experimentation. The way he he embeds his story and himself in this immigrant community, and the movie just kind of elevates the experience of being a humble human into great art. It's a little bit what you're talking about with Truffle Hunters in the aesthetic, Adam, where it's not, you know, it's not presenting the men in that movie as the saints of any sort, but it mm-hmm. is giving them. Um, it's looking at them through an ennobling lens. And I think that is what Costa is doing here um, alongside the woman who is portraying uh, this immigrant that's reflecting her own life and her own experience. It's it's really a beautiful piece of work. Um, and so uh, it made number four on my list. Yeah, I did catch up with this movie and I probably would have reconsidered my top five as well for the cinematography category, this is definitely a mileage may vary film, right? Because either someone is going to hear what I'm about to say and even how you've described the movie and they're going to say, yep, I'm ready, sign me up. And others are going to say, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll skip this one. What Costa is doing here, it seems, is trying moment to moment to render the most he possibly can out of the least possible happening on screen, (laughs) which is a way to say it's a very still, very... Quiet, quiet yep, yep. very observant yes. movie. And it also, in a way, fits back into everything we've been talking about with documentaries because we're talking about a movie that captures reality. Characters portraying versions of themselves, other non-professional actors living in natural environments and nothing unnatural occurs on screen. And yet what part of this aesthetic says to you naturalism or sort of neorealism, nothing at all, right? It's so all highly stylized. And I was talking about the stillness. The moment that really got me, Josh, is a scene with Vitalina, maybe about three quarters of the way through the movie, where she's responding to someone in a conversation and she's framed in a doorway and the the use of colors and the, the, the darkness within the frame and the deliberation with which she is moving and talking is such that it literally looks like she's a portrait on a wall Hmm. that has come to life momentarily (laughs) and has decided to speak. Right. Which I do think is, is very important as well, because there's, there's this whole through line in this movie about reckoning with the dead and they, they feel almost like their, their characters, the way they move. Yes. It's as if they're in a sort of purgatory themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Or a trance or that's right. That's true. So, Definitely a fascinating watch, Vitalina Varela. My number four is one that I've got a little bit of help for, Josh. Our friend Dave Chen thinks it's the number one film of the year. Hey, Film Spotting. It's David Chen here from the Culturally Relevant Podcast and the Slash Filmcast. Uh, my favorite film of the year right now is Sound of Metal, uh, the Darius Martyr film in which Riz Ahmed plays a drummer whose life becomes upended when he begins to lose his hearing. Riz Ahmed's performance as Ruben uh, is incredible, and the sound design of the film is immersive. It's a gripping story about humanity and kindness. There's a moment about 10 minutes into the film when Ruben is seeing a hearing specialist who's telling him that a lot of his hearing is gone and that the rest of his time needs to be devoted to preserving what's left of his hearing. We then smash cut to later that evening when Ruben is again performing in a heavy metal concert against the advice of this hearing specialist. And it's this really shocking and stunning testament to 
our desire for normality, like, like our human desire for things to stay the same and for everything to go back to normal. Yes, it will come back. I have to... There's like a surgery. What? It's simple. It's all it is. There's an implant. They put it in your... It's like a... Okay, it'll come back. It's fine, Luke. It's like 40 grand, 80 grand, whatever, but it's... We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou. No. Listen to me. Let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like. Let's try it, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play to me. No. Huh? You can adjust. It's different, but it is what it is, Lou. And that's really what the movie's about, in my opinion. It's about how we try to keep things as normal-seeming as possible despite everything that's going on around us. Uh, and how in doing so, we may cost ourselves even more. I think it's a lesson we could all use this year. Keep up the great work, and thank you. Great thoughts there from Dave about my number four film of the year, Sound of Metal. And in our recent Best Film of the Year poll, we got this comment from a listener named Michael. No last name, no location. He's just Michael Josh. He says, it broke my heart not to see Sound of Metal on this list, though its recent release date may be the reason for its omission. But here I am voting other because Sound of Metal is a masterful display of filmmaking. The beautiful sound design is coupled with a nuanced, sensitive performance by Riz Ahmed. And all of this is connected by the beautifully drawn theme of letting go of the illusion of control. At its core, Sound of Metal is a story of selfhood. And I was completely surprised by the journey it took me on. This is a film more people need to see and discuss. I think Dave and Michael are saying kind of variations of the same thing. This notion of selfhood, of discovering your identity, of accepting who you are and being responsible for yourself is something that that comes about when that sense of normalcy is completely upended. When all of your normal routines are not serving you anymore, you can't fall back into those normal patterns, it makes you confront who you are Really, and I think it's also tied closely to Ruben in this film being an addict, something that comes up multiple times and plays a role in the place he ultimately goes to to seek treatment, to adjust to his new life without being able to hear. I'm not going to presume to speak with any authority on that topic beyond the terms the movie uses, but Ruben acts with an impulsiveness of someone needing a fix, right? Even that example that Dave mentions in his voicemail, where in one moment he's being told, you're going to lose all your hearing. All you can do now is try to hang on to what you have. And the very next cut, he's playing a gig, beating the drums as loud as he ever has, completely ignoring that. It really is for Ruben only about living for the moment, in the moment, and he'll deal with the consequences later. And you see, he's so indignant with his girlfriend, and with his mentor, this guy who's trying to help him, a therapist, essentially played by Paul Racy, one of the best supporting performances of the year. When they mention this behavior to him, that he's acting like an addict, he gets angry because he's not using. So in his mind, well, everything must be fine. Except he's just replacing that with other ways to destroy himself. Ruben. I don't understand the situation that you put yourself in. But, from where I'm sitting, you look and sound like an addict. Oh, no. Yo, no. It's not, it's not, not an addict. It's fine, okay? My situation, it's cool, okay? Seriously, my girlfriend's 
dad is rich, give me the give me the money. Okay, this is nothing. You can't imagine how nothing this is. Seriously. It has an end scene that I won't mm-hmm. spoil, but is arguably totally predictable from a narrative and kind of a larger, you know, metaphorical storytelling standpoint. And yet it hits with such a force. And there are also, beyond that scene, Josh, a couple of conversations that happen between Ruben and different characters that just involve two people confronting a harsh reality together that for me are just as powerful as that end scene. And one of them is the scene between Ahmed and Racy in particular that comes pretty late in the film. And I'll just say it's two guys sitting across from each other, one being true to his self and the other maybe against his will, I'll say being set on the path to realizing his self and Yes, the sound design in this movie is immersive and it's a major part of what makes Sound of Metal special, but it seems like that one that reminds you when you've written two great characters portrayed by two really sensitive performers and the audience is invested in those characters and you know what the stakes are of that conversation and they're high, just sitting them across from each other is all the kind of bravura filmmaking you need. It was for me anyway with Sound of Metal. Yeah, I, I liken this to to Relic in the way you described your experience there, Adam, where this was really good as it went on, and then that ending hits you. Um, mm-hmm. You're right. Like, thematically, that's of course, that's where it's going to go, but you could never guess exactly like this or as delicately and sensitively presented as that ending is. And the, the movie just jumps up, you know, you're like, oh, wow. Um, it, and it's this was such a surprise, too, because I think I asked you after you'd seen it, you know, well, how much heavy metal is it? You know, it's kind of like, do I really right. want to sit through? And that's it's like that's not really much of the movie at all not that it no not that it needed to get rid of that for me but i was so surprised that it would become this film about addiction it was become this film about the relationship um between him and his girlfriend uh, which mm-hmm. we return to near the end right and and boy riz ahmed there is i don't think we talked about this when we were talking about our best acting choices but that donut scene <laughs> I keep thinking about where he's at the uh, the retreat center and he's mm-hmm. being told, you know, you should try going in a room early in the morning with a notepad and and write something every day. Um, and so he comes in, brings a donut. I think it's the first day, right? And he before he gets very far, he just smashes that donut on the table, which is, yeah. you know, that like you get that choice, like express the frustration non-verbally. Okay. I get it. Here's why this is a brilliant performance. Half a second after smashing it to bits instinctively without even thinking about it, he starts putting it together, trying to reform it with his hands. Right. And that is because he's a fixer. This, this goes back to how you were describing him. Um, you know, we first meet him before we know he's an addict. We see his morning routine of the smoothies Mm -hmm. and the pushups and the, because he's fixing his problem, you know, however we, he beat it. That's it. We didn't, we don't see that that happened earlier. Um, but now he knows how to fix it. So when he's faced with the loss of his hearing, what's he going to do? Well, I'll just fix it. I'm going to, I'm going to find the solution and I'm going to take care of it. There has to be a way. There has to be a way. And, and you know, that is entirely embodied in the frantic reassembling of a smash donut, which is, you know, just great acting. Okay. So we are now going to jump around a little bit. I'm going to share my number three film here in a second. Josh, we're going to jump up to your number two. We're going to try to preserve a little bit of suspense here and get those two consensus picks coming together in the final segment here with Michael and Tasha. Let's hear what your number two film of the year is. 
And actually, let's uh, hear from Mikado Murphy, our friend at the New York Times, uh, as well, because I think this might be his number one. Hey, Adam and Josh, it's Mikado Murphy here calling in from New York with my pick for the best movie of the year, and it is Soul. This has been a year of thinking about what really matters in life, who is important to us, how we value each other, what is worth doing, what is not worth doing, and why. And this movie really knocked me to the floor in the way that it contemplates and understands those things. So that's what I'm going with. Thanks, guys. I love the distinction Mikado makes there between, you know, what is worth doing and not worth doing? Because that's one of the, you know, these basic questions about living that I think soul really does explore. I mean, I could go into the very elaborate plot that this movie has, um, which I think it, it navigates incredibly breezily, brilliantly, I would say, um, you know, that involves the afterlife and body swapping and all this kind of crazy stuff. But you don't really need to uh, to know all that to hear about what makes this movie so special is because it is ultimately this story of this jazz pianist, this band teacher coming to understand what he describes himself as regular old living and the beauty of that. Hang on, hang on. What are y'all laughing at? So Connie got a little lost in it. That's a good thing. Look, I remember one time my dad took me to this jazz club, and that's the last place I wanted to be. But then I see this guy, and he's playing his chords with force on it. And then with a minor, I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. Then he has the inner voices, and it's like he's, it's like he's singing. And I swear the next thing I know, it, 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 it's like he floats off the stage. That guy was lost in the music. He was in it, and he took the rest of us with him. I got to say, Adam, like, Soul, th- this might be a case. We've been talking a little bit about the timing of our viewing of some things. Mm-hmm. I saw this maybe a month ago now, around then, and I was just ready at the end of 2020 for something that was, Scott Tobias used this phrase when he talked about Dick Johnson is dead, life-affirming. You know, just something that reminded me that life can be good. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't have to mean, um, you know, in the context of soul, that you necessarily become a famous jazz pianist. It, it could mm-hmm. mean as simple as there there is a moment in the movie where um, the main character voiced by Jamie Foxx is just sitting on a sidewalk and he looks up and these whirlybird maple seeds are are falling from the sky as they tend to do. This is set mostly on a beautiful autumn day. And um, he just holds out his hand. The animation in this, in, in this particular point is just gorgeous. And a seed just kind of spins around back and forth and, and just lands in his hand. And in that moment, the way it's animated and the way he responds to it makes it feel like a miracle. Um, and so I don't know that soul is saying anything, you know, hugely philosophically revealing. It's just saying that life can be good. Look for those moments, um, appreciate them when you have them. Um, and so I could go on and on about the animated genius of this, how the afterlife elements are, are very funny and the designs there. I've already talked about the score um, mm-hmm. on our previous show. But really, the, the honest thing is when I watched Soul, I needed Soul. 
And um, I do think it's going to hold up as well. I've got it right now. It jumped into my top five Pixar. Um, and I'm just hugely appreciative that um, I got this movie. I mean, it, this is one of the beautiful things about life is we get movies like Soul. And so mm-hmm. I want to I want to appreciate it now. I, I loved it. It's just like 2020 to leave me being a little more cynical about soul than you. And I think it's a very, very good film. Don't get me wrong. I had a great experience with it, watched it with the whole family. But I think maybe I was watching some of those life is good, just look for it affirmations and going, yeah, and, <laughs> you know, there there was a part of me that that I don't know why needed a little bit more. I think I have it right now, Josh, middle of the Pixar pack. I'm going to watch it again and it may move up at that point. But I think... I was held back a little bit by some of the similarities to Inside Out from a from a narrative standpoint in terms yeah, of the Pete plot. Doctor, Pete Doctor worked on yeah, both. Yeah, Pete Doctor. The and that's a movie I love and and have much higher on my Pixar list than you do. So we're just in reverse on Soul and Inside Out. But the similarities as far as those internal forces kind of determining who you really are and what your personality is, and even the uh, visualization of some of the characters is very similar in the afterlife to some of the characters we see in Inside Out. But I guess I always go back to the way Inside Out really surprised me with where it went. I had no idea as I watched that movie what the kind of culmination or sort of what the moral of it was going to be. I'm still not sure I actually know what Inside Out's moral is. Whereas I feel like this one is leaving you with a little bit more of a tidy kind of affirmation to walk away with. And in 2020, we all need that, but maybe I'm too enamored with Inside Out. I don't know what it was that just left me a little bit colder on it than you, but still recognizing the Pixar artistry here. Well, it, it sounds like because you're looking for the and, and Soul is about yeah. not looking for the and. <laughs> I can't <laughs> so do that. <laughs> you, it, might, yeah, it, might, it might never work for you then. No, maybe not. Okay, my number three film of 2020 is One Night in Miami. I was just saying, Josh, about Sound of Metal, when you've written great characters portrayed by really sensitive, really smart performers, and the audience is invested, and you know what the stakes of the conversations are, that... All you got to do is kind of put these characters in the space together and it's great filmmaking. Well, that's how I feel about this film. A first time feature from actress Regina King here as director Kemp Powers adapting his play. And Josh, I bet you didn't know I was going to use this top 10 to carry down film criticism commandments from the mount. But mm. here I go. Okay. okay. I'm, I'm, I'm decreeing it here between Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, my number 10 film of the year, The Father which I've referenced earlier, I'm not as high on overall as many others, but it does fit my argument here. And this, One Night in Miami, I'm going to say it, any version of the phrase can't overcome its stage roots, stage bound, too obviously a play, I'm just going to say you can't say it anymore. Unless we're literally Hmm. talking about a movie that looks like they stuck a couple cameras in the audience to record an actual stage performance. And you can explain that there's been no attention whatsoever paid to camera placement or framing or lighting or editing. Then without that, you just, you can't say it anymore. Critics, you got to ban it from the lexicon. You got to find a more creative way to express your misgivings about films adapted from plays. Not that I think Miami is going to be met with such resistance from critics, Josh, but it's just how strongly I feel about the movie, which does mostly unfold over one night in one hotel room set back in February 1964, fictionalized meeting Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, 
Malcolm X. This is the night that still Cassius Clay, about to become Muhammad Ali, has just become the heavyweight champion of the world by beating Sonny Liston. And I think what I'm really trying to get at is that adapting a play to the screen, I don't think has to mean that you are required to open it up in terms of more locations or pulling off a bunch of fancy camera moves. It does mean you have to use the camera and editing in purposeful ways. And so there are many examples in One Night in Miami, but in one instance fairly early when Ali, Brown, and Cook all learn from Malcolm that he has no intentions of either inviting anyone over to party with them or going out. They're just going to stay in and have a serious, thoughtful conversation as four friends. King stages it in a way and cuts it so that Malcolm is framed sitting, conveying a sort of casual authority, but he's completely isolated from the other three. You've got Brown and Cook standing opposite. They're incredulous. And you've got Ali, who's who's aligned with them, wants to party with them. But of course, he also wants to be aligned with Malcolm. And so he's sitting on the bed. And it's kind of two and a half against one, if you will. And I'm going to come back to a little bit of another running theme that's been in this show, a little cheekily maybe with a trip to Greece, but through Mank and the battle with Levy and Ma in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And I, I think most potently and, and pointedly here, this idea of participation in a political process, fighting injustice. What's the individual's role? What specifically is the black artist or athlete's role and their responsibilities? What are they willing to sacrifice for a greater good? And what we see is that there's no easy way, certainly, but there's also no one right way. All four of these men over the course of this night, and we hear their philosophies and the path that they're on, they're all very different. And sometimes they're in complete opposition to each other, which is really the case between Malcolm and Sam Cooke. They just have totally divergent views on how they as individuals can best help bring about racial equality. They want the same thing. Again, just very different ways of going about it. And I'll say the obvious, that conversation, of course, is just as relevant in 2020 as ever before. Black people, we, we, we standing up. Mm -hmm. we, we, we speaking out. Sam, you have possibly one of the most effective Beautiful outlets of us all. You're not using it to help the cause, bro. Hell, I'm not. I got the masters to my songs. I started a label. I'm producing tons of black artists. Don't you think my determining, my creative and business destiny is every bit as inspiring to people as you standing up on a podium trying to piss them off? Kingsley Benadir plays Malcolm X. I think I had him at the top of my Chicago Film Critics ballot for lead performance and... Leslie Odom was at the top for Best Supporting Actor. I talked about making these titanic figures, especially Malcolm X, seem human. And for a film that's all about how you get at the political through the personal, we see these men as friends. We see them as black men who are trying to do the right thing. And we see how they bleed, you know, when they're, when they're called out, metaphorically, when they're called out by the friends in the room, these other people they admire when they have to confront their own hypocrisies and failings. So these four characters, these four actors in a room with this writing and Regina Keene's direction made One Night in Miami one of my best experiences of the year. Well, I'll say this about your decree from the mountaintop okay. is <laughs> um, I'm always going to need some cinema in my play adaptations. And so I think it's always going to be a factor that's that's fair to consider. I mean, you're absolutely right that for a, for a great scene in a movie, 
that might be all you need is the material and the actors um, and the camera watching them. But what is, and that's what great theater gives us, right? We're the camera. Um, But what is missing when you're not in that auditorium is the electricity uh, of being live, of being, of feeling that in the air, in the room you share, in the air you're breathing with the actors. So what can replace that if you're going to take that material um, and put it on the screen? Well, that's where, where, that's where cinema comes in. And that's where, you know, as you said, you make choices about, the edits or the blocking where, you know, blocking yeah. also is a stage thing. But um, so I guess, you know, all of this, I should preface with that. I did. I liked one night in Miami, it, you know, quite a bit. Um, but something like 40 year old version that I talked about that is on my list at number eight, I think um, not an adaptation, but a film made by a playwright um, and makes some different choices that are purely movie choices in terms of the imagery or the edits or the using extraneous material and bringing it in. Um, and so that's where I like, I, maybe I get a little more excited and I'm looking for a play adaptation to bring something like that. Now, all that to say, <laughs> Regina King is director here, boy, making her first film, adapting a play comes out of the gate saying, Oh, you want a movie? Okay, I'll give mm-hmm. you a movie with a fantastic right. shot. First of all, she's going to take on some boxing scenes. I mean, that's no, you know, when you look at the the history of movies and boxing scenes, um, yep. you're really stepping up to the plate there. But she opens this movie with this really masterful shot that pushes from the back of an arena into the ring, bringing us right in on Ali in a way that, you know, maybe other boxing films have done variations of before, but at least made me sit up and notice, okay, we've got a film here. Um, so I agree with you that the one night in Miami makes choices that does do that. Um, yeah. I just think we still need to ask those questions and demand those things of play adaptations is, is, you know, is yeah, kind of like, no. show me, show right. me why you're on the screen. <laughs> and, right. I think know? the only area where we're disagreeing and we're not ultimately is I'm trying to push back a little bit against the idea of, I think you said purely cinematic choices in that. I think there are certain things we look to and go, Oh, that was obviously a cinematic choice. But I'm saying that the advantage that of course cinema has over the theater, obviously is the ability to direct the viewer's eye and direct their attention. And as long as you are doing that, I think in a meaningful way, in a purposeful way, that that's cinema. It's certainly cinematic enough, at least for me. So again, one night in Miami, keep an eye out for it. I can't wait to watch it again. So what are the absolute best films of the year? Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson will be back after the break to help us decide. Stay with us. spend a few minutes talking with you about your relationships, okay? Because they can affect your health. Did you know that? No? All right. So I'm going to ask you some questions. They can be really personal. And all you have to do is answer either never, rarely, sometimes, or always. It's kind of like multiple choice, but it's not a test. Okay. Okay. In the past year, 
You're listening to Film Spotting and our top 10 films of 2020 countdown. That was a clip from a great 2020 movie that somehow didn't make either of our top 10 films of the year. I think, Josh, we did both point out at the start of part one of our top 10 that it was just on the outside looking in Eliza Hitman's Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which was one of the titles we gave you in our best of 2020 poll. We asked Film Spotting listeners, Simply, what was the best film of 2020? And in addition to Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, we gave you these options. Spike Lee's To Five Bloods, Kelly Reichert's First Cow, I'm Thinking of Ending Things from Charlie Kaufman, Mank from director David Fincher. One of the most streamed movies of the year, as I understand it, Palm Spring, starring Andy Samberg and Christian Milotti. Or you could say all of those are wrong. I'm going off the grid. I like something else entirely. You can vote other and write it in. Josh, how did it come out? Well, a bit of a surprise here, at least for me, in last place is Mank with 5% of the vote. And then to Five Bloods, 6%, which I think Sam had mentioned at one point, Adam, that won our poll at the midway point of the year I um, think so. for favorite among listeners. So um, a lot of people found films they like better since then, including coming up here next, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, received 10% of the vote. That's great to see for a small film like that. Palm Springs got a lot of eyeballs and a fair number of people voted for it here with 13% of the vote. I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the Charlie Kaufman film on your list, Adam, got 14% of the vote. Kelly Reichert's First Cow, however, of the films we offered, received the most votes with 24%. But yeah, the other category took this poll with 28%. So what were some of the movies that were written in? Ben from Manchester says, while First Cow, The Assistant, and Dick Johnson is Dead are all strong contenders for my film of the year, I decided to vote for Josephine Decker's surreal biopic, Shirley. Not only for Decker's dreamlike interpretive approach to Shirley Jackson's life, or even Elizabeth Moss's wonderful performance in the titular role alongside a strong supporting cast of Odessa Young, Michael Stuhlbarg, and Logan Lerman, but because this was one of the few films I got to experience in the cinema this year after my lockdown hiatus. Perhaps this was a case of the experience being elevated because of the environment, but I have to say there was a deep and nourishing joy to returning to a dark screening and losing myself in a filmmaker's work for two hours, particularly one this imaginative, artistic, and enthralling. So perhaps the uh, theatrical viewing experience bump there for Ben. Yep. Here's a vote from Jake Scubbish. No other 2020 movie came close to how good David Byrne's American Utopia made me feel. I don't know if that should be the standard for the best movie every year, but it is this year. Hmm. James from Belleville says, Mank is my favorite fiction film of the year. The best movie I've seen overall is Kirsten Johnson's extraordinary Dick Johnson is Dead. It's a funny, inventive, profound, and devastating documentary that proved the promise Johnson showed with Camera Person was no fluke. I don't know of any other filmmaker who could have made this miraculous movie. Costa has a title here that has not come up yet on our show. Not only is Boys State the documentary of the year, but I believe it is the movie of the year as well. The way the directors are able to harness the chaos of 1,200 teenage boys participating in what I can best describe as a hubristic riot of patriotism and create a succinct and effective commentary on modern politics is nothing short of a miracle. So we're going to hear a little bit more about some of these titles in a bit. Luke Schultes writes, The Romanian documentary Collective isn't just one of the best movies of 2020. It's also indirectly the best movie about 2020. Although it was filmed five years ago, few movies have done more to demonstrate the importance of quality journalism, competent government, and reliable health care. By no means a pleasant watch but an important one. I think between all of us, Josh, we can come up with about 37 different movies that define 2020 the best. 
Yeah, we could apply that label to many of them. Uh, We got a couple of write-in votes here for some BRIC nominees. So as you're listening, take this into account as you consider who you want to vote for in the Golden Brick poll. Here's Simon Smith. Could I be using this as an excuse to hear the word shithouse said again? Possibly. Could I be using this as an opportunity to shout out a film I'm emotionally biased toward? Quite likely. However, as someone nearing the end of a college experience not dissimilar to that of Alex, played by shithouse writer and director Cooper Rafe, I think it'd be a mistake not to at least mention this film. Beyond even the achievement of getting made, Shithouse is the eighth grade meets the graduate movie I never knew I needed. Do I really think this is technically the best film of the year? No, and so maybe my vote should be disqualified. But before that happens, let's indulge ourselves one last time. I'll let you take this one, Adam, and say, "Shit house." <laughs> so, unfortunately, that movie, it's so fun to say, and yet we didn't include it in our list of finalists. Made the short list, mm. not a finalist, Won't Josh. Be in the poll. Tragically. These two did make the poll. Michael Harrington says the vast of night was by far the most thrilling, beautiful, memorable cinematic experience I had this year. That simple story, the curiosity of those characters, how the filmmakers did so much with so little was a reminder of why we go to the movies. And one more write in vote. This comes from Patrick. I went with below the man down. I don't know if it's the best, but it is my favorite an exciting voice, true vision and great acting. If I set it to the film spotting test and each of these directors next films are playing at a multiplex and I can only see one, I'm headed to the Cole Curdy showing. So this gets my vote. Blow the man down probably won't win this poll, but hopefully golden brick glory awaits. So that's the Sam Van Hallgren film spotting producer test, and it's a really good one. And I even applied it, Josh, when we did our Chicago film critics ballots and had to vote on the first time feature, the breakthrough filmmaker of the year. Very similar, obviously, in some ways to our Golden Brick Award. And it can sometimes change your answer because you're inclined to go with the movie that you liked best. If you put together a ranking Did this movie slot higher than any other? I guess that should be the Golden Brick winner. And yet sometimes when you think about it in terms of what if I could go see only one of these two movies and it pits this Golden Brick filmmaker against this one, we only have their prior film to go off of. Which one are you more excited about? It does sometimes alter where your head's at. Well, it should be a factor, right? It's one of the qualities we look for when considering if a film is eligible for a Golden Brick is that promise. Um, And that's what that's what this question speaks to for sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of Golden Brick Glory, before we get to our consensus top two picks of the year, bring Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson back on for that. A quick reminder that voting for the 2020 Golden Brick is now live at filmspotting.net. That's where you can vote. You can leave a comment. You can urge listeners to apply this test and maybe go in a different direction than they currently are. In addition to Blow the Man Down and The Vast of Night, my number four film of the year, Sound of Metal, is a contender. Benjamin Marie's The Painter and the Thief, my number five film, is a finalist as well. Josh, your number seven, Kitty Green's The Assistant, is there. Garrett Bradley's Time didn't make any of our top ten lists, but a very good film and really fascinating and fascinatingly made documentary is also on the list along with Eliza Hittman's Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Again, you can vote now at filmspotting.net. Hey, Adam and Josh and Filmspotting. This is Josh Youngerman calling to give my favorite film of 2020. It's a pretty easy pick for me. Um, It's uh, Chloe Zhao's Nomadland Um, for really a lot of reasons, but one in particular. Um, So I've seen this film twice, and the first time I saw it, I was really taken with it as a 
sort of portrait of the working class and working people on screen, which I think is something that is very rare. Um, and I also just thought that the filmmaking was just incredible and uh, Francis McDormand's performance, performance of her career. But um, on a second watch, I saw a completely different film. Um, I saw a film about grief, about how we process grief. And I found that incredibly moving and profound and impactful. And um, I think Chloe Zhao kind of pulled the magic trick almost, you know. So um, looking forward to hearing your picks and wishing you all safe and happy new year. We get back into our countdown now with our special guests, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune, Tasha Robinson from Polygon and the next picture show. You guys don't look like you've aged a bit. (laughs) <laughs> since we last saw you looking great it's 2020 and every week is a thousand years long so i'm very surprised that we don't look a thousand years older we were just hearing from a longtime listener a longtime voicemailer josh youngerman originally a chicago native with his pick for the number one film of the year chloe Zhao's nomadland we will get back to nomadland here in a second first you guys have been gone while we've been sharing our picks we thought we would quickly recap for you our recent choices at number five i had the painter and the thief number four sound of metal and my number three one night in miami josh i had the horror film relic at number five and at number four i had pedro costa's Vitalina Varela. We jumped up to my number two for reasons we'll see in a bit. And at number two, I have for 2020 Pixar's Soul. Yeah, we are going to get to ultimately what I'm going to call here our consensus top two films of the year. Tasha may take an issue or two with that, but I think it'll work out. In the meantime, we do have some of the films that round out your guys' top five we want to hear about. We want to talk a little bit more about Nomadland, as I said. But also, it turns out, Tasha Robinson, that while we were getting ready to record, you mentioned that one of our choices is one that doesn't sit very well with you. And since you often play the role of contrarian, and I say that with all the most respect on these top 10 roundtables, I'd love for you to go ahead, especially because it's not me, it's Josh, just (laughs) take down... Just take oh. down his number five. So, see, you just want to cue him up for yeah, an pretty argument. much. Uh, you know, I'm going to, as the resonant contrarian, uh, resist that characterization okay. because I, I feel like I'm next picture shows uh, contrarian. But uh, traditionally, Michael has done as much resisting in these uh, year end mm-hmm. podcasts as I have, and sometimes it's gotten pretty contentious. And then sometimes the two of us have sat back and watched you and Josh go hammer and tongs. <laughs> right. But usually, there's a lot of arguing. So. Our our bottom five was all very peaceful. I hear that uh, in our absence, you guys had a very peaceful discussion about uh, uh, other films. I almost feel obligated to uh, attack Josh about something, you know, just so 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 the people can have some sort of disagreement. Sounds mm-hmm. like your heart isn't really in this, Tasha. I don't Bring know. It. Bring it, Tasha. <laughs> I walked out of Relic uh, just incensed, infuriated. Oh I found the ending of that movie 
facile and oh, insulting no. and <laughs> oh, no. just I, I, in a way horrifying. I I can't take yeah. too much exception to the filmmaking itself. I found it very effective as a horror film. The uh, segments of, of kind of fumbling around in a, a changing house that's representative of a certain metaphorical things. As far as the direction and the tension and uh, the images and the acting, like all of those things I thought fit together fairly well to produce a really strong effect. But in the end, it it all comes down to one big symbolic statement, which is basically, in to, to me, it came down to, hey, old people are people too. <laughs> they're hideous, twisted, monstrosity versions of people, but they're still people. So let's be self-congratulatory to ourselves mm. for accepting them as such. I hated it, Josh. Hated it. What? Tell me what you loved so much about this film. Well, Tasha, you are living up to billing in that you have located, <laughs> you have, in your disgust, you have located the masterstroke of the film as the thing that's troubled you because it was absolutely that ending. That got to be, it's the thing that elevated it beyond, as I was saying when I was discussing with Adam, you know, beyond those horror elements that I too think were really well crafted. And it just became something really special. It became, I saw it more as just an expression of, of unconditional love. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, it, it sounds like it's not the idea, but maybe the, how it was expressed that, that bothered you because I just found that really moving that it ended up in this place where it was constantly going back and forth between, should we be horrified by this mother, this aging mother and her situation? Should we, how do we bring compassion to this situation? And Instead of an either-or answer, this really strange ending melded both in a way I found I found beautiful, not really patronizing at all. It's funny because I'm in the middle of you two, right, where I found the craft of it to be fine, but maybe a little strained in its attempts to draw out all the tension. And maybe the ending didn't hit me quite as hard as it did Josh, but I certainly admired its strangeness and its boldness. So that that is where maybe the uh, movie went up a notch for me. So... We have three different sort of takes here on on Relic, and Tasha, I really appreciate that you feel that strongly about it, because <laughs> we do need a little conflict on these top 10 shows. Going back to Nomadland, and this does help us transition back to our list. We heard from Josh Youngerman. He talked about Nomadland as a movie, the first time he saw it, took it completely as a portrait of working class and working people, which he loved, really responded to, saw a different film the second time. He said a movie really about grief and how we process grief, and that's kind of the trick of the film. Now, Michael, you had this movie at number four on your list. Tasha, you have it at number three. Let's go ahead and start with you. What do you think about Josh Youngerman's take What's your take on Nomadland? I am looking forward to seeing it a second time and seeing what unfolds. I think that that is a very insightful look at it uh, in thinking about it in terms of grief. I think it's also a film about learning to be all right with being lonely. Uh, I think in a year where a lot of us were lonely when we weren't overcrowded in our own homes, the, the message of essentially it's okay to be alone and there are things in the world that you can find on your own to leaven that feeling of being alone, to to kind of, I almost want to talk about it in spiritual terms. I'm, I'm not exactly the world's most spiritual person, but there's a shot towards the end where Francis McDormand is just 
exploring the coast and you're just watching the the waves roll in in this vast landscape that just feels so open compared to the walls I've lived my life in for the last nine months. It felt like standing there with her uh, outdoors and it felt like standing there alone outdoors exactly as she was. It It's moving without saying a word. I love filmmaking that gives you a feeling without telling you what that feeling is or how to feel about it. And Nomadland just start to finish was a movie that, that does have conversations about loneliness, about grief, about making decisions for yourself, about isolation, but it never really explains to you. And this is how you should feel about it and why. Mm -hmm. And as the movie moves more and more into a silent space at the end, it moves more and more into an arena where it feels all right to be silent where it feels all right to just be taking all of this in, all of this luscious land, all of this beauty, just just swallowing it up quietly on your own. I was so impressed with it. Hmm. Michael? That's a great description. I mean, I really, I haven't seen it a second time yet either, Tasha. And, and that, it's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful way to look at it. Like, how does, how does this sort of odyssey of uh, isolation, and, and for a lot of it, for the McDormand character, who has many interactions, and this is the, this is basically the the narrative spine of the film, right? As, as such as it is, it's just you know, okay, how how does she learn to kind of relate back into you know a different aspect of her personality, you know, as she kind of you know she's on her own a hell of a lot in this thing, and it's but but we see all that isolation in such a different weird way in this goddamn pandemic year because it's 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 a lot of isolation, but. It's a kind of freedom of movement and and easy interaction when when it's emotionally right that is not part of our 2020. You know, it's it's a film about people who got creamed by the last recession, not this one, uh, 20, oh, you know, two, 2007, 2008, and mm -hmm. caught adrift in many ways. But as you say, I think it, it it's a matter of Chloe Zhao has a very... Um, non-specific, but really searching uh, quality in terms of uh, kind of a spiritual aspect of her filmmaking, and it's it's not just God knows it's not just travelogue imagery, uh, although it's it sure is an eyeful this film everywhere, and it really does make you look at glamorous and unglamorous parts of especially the American Southwest and the American West in a new way. It's exactly how I felt about you know how how she shot the Dakotas in uh, 2018's The Rider, which was my favorite film that year. And if I have any tiny objection to this, and, and, and I want to see how it's going to hold up a second time, is that this film had just a couple of things about it that were a little less than perfect, and I really never got to that point with The Rider. I just felt like that thing mm -hmm. was it, up and down, straight through. And but even the problems with it, and then I'll shut up, even the problems or the the questions I had about it the first time where it becomes a more hmm, uh, familiar, let's say, potential romance between uh, the McDormand character and the man she meets, uh, played by David Strathairn, who's honestly hair. I mean, that's great hair. He's got <laughs> what a what a head of hair that guy's yep. got. I mean, and yeah, and a wonderful. Wonder, I've always liked him. Always liked him on stage, on screen. I just think he's got something that other people, you know, it's not really like anybody else's quality. But mm -hmm. there's not really much tipping the McDormand. And again, this may be just a male, a kind of a schmucky male perspective. But there's not really there's not an interesting 
uh, enough conflict, I think, about her wanting to spend time with him or not in a meaningful way. It's more just like the the narrative kind of needed a, well, uh, not quite ready for it yet. Mm-hmm. Not to give it too much away, which I just yeah. did. Uh, but <laughs> to me, that took it back to more like a, 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 a good 70s film, like Unmarried Woman, where you have Alan Bates and Jill Clayburgh together at the end, if anybody remembers that film. And, you know, there's, the audience rooting interest is pretty strong to keep them together. And there's not quite enough going on with the interior psychology. I think it's it needs five more minutes somewhere where we just sort of feel it and see it and kind of live with it and let it flow. But, you know, the whole movie... I, I, Chloe Zhao is just great, you know. I mean, she is just one yeah. of the three or four best directors we have in this country right now. And my understanding is that Frances McDormand optioned the nonfiction book Nomadland, which uh, tells various real stories about people who live a very nomadic existence after getting kind of bounced by the Great Depression uh, out of their normal lives. And, you know, this is a fictionalized sort of riff on that and and mcdormand's character isn't quote you know real unquote but uh authentic is another thing it is i think and there's a there's i i what i love about zhao is is that mixture of nonfiction and fictional techniques blending to kind of create a third way to tell a story and to look at our country and where the hell we are and you mm-hmm. know that's again i'll see it a second time to see if the the quote romance unquote washes any differently from me or feels a little a little more convincing the way it's played out but that's a tiny tiny problem i have with an otherwise damn good movie hi fern hey i I was at the gas station and um, i think it's better if you don't drive through the park when it's dark for your cigarettes so i got you these what are they uh licorice sticks I can't smoke liquor sticks. Well, I know, but uh, you can chew on these, and you know they they help her er, er, curb the urge. I'm not going to quit smoking, Dave. Yeah, I know, but you, you should try these. They're good for the digestion too. Fine, thanks. What's going on? Ants. I've got ants. Well, Michael, I think that relationship has those elements you're talking about. You know, the more conventional ones. And and I'd agree with you overall. I, I think the writer is probably the, the stronger accomplishment. But that relationship, where it works is how it relates to this question at the heart of the film for me is how much is this lifestyle a choice for Fern, the McDormand character, and how much is it a choice that's kind of forced upon her by the closing of the factory she worked at and the closing of the town. And what I like about Nomadland is it, it never... It always exists in that in-between space where it's a little bit of both. And um, we can see how she's she's choosing this lifestyle in part, and there's something invigorating about that. You know, that that this is a country where someone—there is a, a freedom to that, right? That this vast country, someone could choose to live this way, and it's a difficult life, but they can choose it if they want. At the same time, she is kind of forced into it which is kind of the curse of this country, right? The the capitalist element that's coming in that she wouldn't be in this position at all if it weren't for the emphasis on capitalism that results in that factory closing, in that town being shut down. And so I think where the relationship comes into play is her meeting this character, Dave, gives her another choice of which way she wants to go. And I, you know, I don't want to spoil what she chooses, but I thought it was actually kind of, kind of beautiful how that 
comes into play where we leave Fern at the end of Nomadland and how that factors into how much she's there by choice and how much she's there because she had no other options. I want to hear what Tasha and Adam have to say about that too, because I may just, it may have just been one little quirk of, you know, I don't know what exactly provoked that response in, in me, but it, um, I do, it's as open ended as anything though. I love the open ended quality of all her filmmaking, but even if I have a problem with some of the, what happens in the last half hour or so, it, the last, you, you're, you, what you're really left with is a much more ambiguous and mm-hmm. we'll write this story in our head, really, where it ends or where it goes from here, you know. Well, to go full circle, I think that everything Josh is saying, Michael, you in terms of the r- romance and her reticence with that, Tasha, certainly the loneliness, I think it does all come back to what Josh Youngerman was talking about, which is pain. I think it I think it all does fundamentally. And this is where, Josh, you were talking about how much of it is a choice. There are certain factors at play, but also there's something there's a factor inside of her that I think is keeping her from resisting. It's not just the freedom. It's also isolation out of fear, maybe. And and I think it's both of those things. Absolutely. Uh, you know, simultaneously in this movie. I'm, I'm with you, too, Michael. I'm a little bit more of a, a writer fan than Nomadland. But this is a movie that I also am eager to see a second time. And we'll get that chance. We'll get a chance to talk about it in more detail than we have previously here on the show. February 19th, I think, is Nomadland's official release date. So more to come on that film here on Film Spotting. We do want to give a little bit more time before we get to the top two films of the year to a couple of the other choices on Michael and Tasha's list. And maybe it's appropriate, Tasha, that after you just decimated Josh's <laughs> choice of relic. Painful, painful. Maybe you want to talk about an alternative horror film that you've got at number five that I don't know about Michael, but I'm going to say I'm pretty sure Josh and I did not see. This is called The Platform. I feel like I'm not doing my job if I'm not walking in here with some movie that not only other people haven't seen, but that those who have seen uh, don't don't care about or don't <laughs> care for. This is, as I said on the next picture show when we talked about it, it's an idiosyncratic choice. It's one of those films that for me stands out because I spent the whole year thinking about it. I, I just, I couldn't forget about it. It's one of those stories that could only be conceived of, could only be told by the, the person who brought it to the screen. It's just, it's not a piece of uh, uh, generic studio storytelling. It's so specific to the man who created it. This was the first film by Spanish filmmaker Galder Galstelu Uratia. And <laughs> Josh, if capitalism and its effects on the world uh, are concerning you, you maybe need to make time to see this movie. It's a science fiction movie set in a very uncertain sort of uh, future set entirely inside a prison where there is a giant hole in the floor. All of the cells are stacked atop each other. And every day, a giant platform full of food descends through all of the levels uh, for everybody to eat. And it starts at the top with a, a glorious feast for the people at the top. And by the time it gets to the bottom, it's picked clean and people are literally licking the plates. There's just an immediate and obvious symbolism there in terms of in theory, there's enough food there for everyone in the prison, but people are taking more than their share and, and leaving other people to starve. But it's not about that. It's 
about the imagery. It's about the symbolism, but it's really about our protagonist who's trapped within the system and learning the rules and learning exactly how much impact his response to all of this can or can't have. It's about the people he meets along the way and their various, in many ways, horrible responses to this kind of oppressive regime and where it came from. It's about who he is and how he ended up coming there. It's one of those movies that shifts what it's about and the story it's telling almost every five minutes. Kind of as, as soon as you feel like you've gotten the rules down, you've gotten the story down, and you're watching a, a conventional movie, you're watching something else entirely. I love the creativity of it. I love the verve of the filmmaking, which uh, just the imagery is so specific and shocking. The cinematography is so murky and oppressive. The actors are tremendous. It's an incredibly well-made film. And, you know, it's uh, one of these little weird science fiction foreign knockoffs that turns up on Netflix and Netflix does nothing to promote them. And uh, people Hmm. may run across it while like idly looking to see if the next uh, Princess Switch movie is out yet. So it's it's a weird it's it lives in a weird liminal space. I don't know who's gonna find it, but I know who it's for, and that's me. I love this movie. <laughs> so to be be terribly reductive, it's Snowpiercer but vertical. It is Snowpiercer but vertical, and I would personally say made so much better than Snowpiercer. Whoa, wow. Slow down. I am entirely on board for the messages behind Snowpiercer, but I thought the third act of that movie is a, a tremendous botch Hmm. i think it takes away all agency from the protagonist without explaining in any way why it did it Hmm. i Hmm. I think Hmm. it it's narrative just i don't know what the metaphor would be goes off the rails maybe (laughs) (laughs) but that movie set up a whole lot of uh things that it then did not do anything with whatsoever the platform is just the the lean direct version of that set in a future that seems at least a little more plausible than mm-hmm. a train endlessly circling the globe. Well, I love how blunt the metaphor is. I mean, I have, I just, I just, yeah. I, I have never, I have not seen this, but I, yeah, I mean, I mean, I can't wait. To, I'll definitely check it out on Netflix. The, these last 10 minutes, this is why we have Tasha on film spotting. So thank you, <laughs> Tasha. And, and I am intrigued. I am legitimately sold on wanting to see the platform. We do have a couple more choices from the two of you to highlight, and I didn't have to strain as hard, Tasha, to come up with pairings here. A couple of Chicago movies, both set in our fine city, both movies that document civil unrest and protest in Chicago parks. Michael Phillips at number five, you have the first movie that's going to come up here over the course of the next 15, 20, 30 minutes that challenged our notions of TV versus cinema. Steve James, City So Real. Yeah, I mean, th- that that debate about what what's really uh, d- more a television project and what, what should be, you know, considered a film and therefore, you know, not, you know, more eligible or less eligible depending on, you know, what, what your format is or what, what your parameters are. I, I just don't see the... That's like a dead end argument, you know. I mean, we'll get to the small axe argument in a bit, but I think City for uh, City So Real is certainly one of Steve James's best, and I, I just kind of love the process of it in that he finished it, showed it at Sundance, tried to sell it. You know, people were kind of like, "Well, this is a year ago now." You know, it's yeah, it might be a little too Chicago-y or, you know, maybe there's too much inside baseball about the mayoral race with Lori Lightfoot and all the all the uh, challengers and all that. 
And then, you know, COVID hits and then, you know, suddenly Steve James and his crew are kind of like, yeah, there's a hell of a lot going on in, in this year. <laughs> we, we should probably break this movie back open up and film more. And they ended up filming an entire, you know, a, a new hour plus and got a, and, and sort of got a good deal from the distributor um, they ended up with, National Geographic and others, um, to just say, all right, look, it's we got to deal with everything. George Floyd riots and everything that's happened with Lightfoot and this Chicago, you know, every 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 people fleeing Chicago if they don't like you know that 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 vision of social unrest kind of you know tarnishing their their fair city and all that all the rest of it. But I, I think what you end up with now, it's a big commitment time wise. A lot of the long form Steve James docs are, but what you really get is a complicated enough view of how things work in Chicago for good and ill to be an honest movie and not uh, not a homer you know not a civic booster thing and also not a parachute in and smear them and get out you know i just think james has sort of got that i don't want to say dispassion but it's he's just got the perspective at this point in his in his life and his career to kind of give you a, a real panorama that tells you something without wagging a finger here and there and i just think people don't think enough about urban development and that's a lot of this is just about things like the lincoln yards development and what that does to something like the hideout the music <laughs> and and uh you know there's a million different neighborhoods and a million different neighborhood stories here and i man i'd see this whole thing again just to watch the retired cops at the bridgeport barbershop mm. you know just talking about how they tell on themselves it just <laughs> just kind of a revealing unguarded yep. conversation about mm. uh you know, one of the anecdotes I remember starts with, I know a guy who shot a guy. I know a guy that shot a guy because he was being carjacked. The guy had a gun, shot him, killed him, and now he's being sued civilly. What kind of crap is that? It's ridiculous. Laws are out here to protect these idiots on the street. It's a joke. Glad I'm out of here. And, you know, that's just a, one of a million anecdotes they probably have like that. But it's just it's just, the way that story goes. It's like, holy moly. And it's uh, you know they think it's hilarious, and you know they're not they're not speaking for all cops, but you know the way Steve James makes movies is no one person is speaking for a group of anybody; they're just speaking for themselves. Yeah, you said panorama, Michael. I think that's one of the things I appreciated about, and maybe it's one of the things that you need this format um, to be able to do is the scope of the city and the neighborhoods. Um, you know, as all of us know, it's this is just a city of so many neighborhoods and the way James and his crew embed themselves in a number of them really deeply. I mean, we're, we're not in, we're in some neighborhoods more than others, um, but we really get a full sense of the ones that they visit, what the distinctions are from that barbershop you're describing to, you know, say Pilsen is what, like six blocks away or something like that, but it's a, it's a completely different universe and, right. and city. So real captures that now we could probably do, he could probably do five more episodes or whatever. And there are a whole batch of other neighborhoods that we didn't get to see, but I really did appreciate the expansiveness of this project. So Tasha, that brings us to some Aaron Sorkin love. The Trial of the Chicago 7, number four on your list. Yeah, I'm not usually a person who would describe myself as having any Aaron Sorkin love. I watched this film for a project that I was doing, and I I tumbled into it in the first five minutes. I was hooked from the beginning, and it really surprised me because as much as I love the social network, 
It's never escaped me the degree to which that's an act of uh, creative fiction. And uh, the trial of the Chicago seven also somewhat of an act of creative historical fiction. Although an awful lot of the things that I looked into were actually taken like, like actual lines Mm -hmm. uh, spoken in the film uh, taken from the historical record. It really helps that, Sorkin is dealing with uh, primarily as he he has the entire uh, Chicago Seven, a a group of protesters um, put on trial in the wake of the 1968 Democratic National Convention riots. He has all of them uh, as protagonists in a way, but a lot of the focus is on Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. And they were such characters. You know, they spoke in Aaron Sorkin dialogue Hmm. a lot of the time. And Having uh, Sasha Baron Cohen playing Abby Hoffman, I think, also just gives the film an energy. Uh, some of the story is actually told with him doing a sort of stand-up, uh, something that that Hoffman would actually do. Just go to colleges and stand on a stage uh, with students listening to him and just tell stories from his life. The guy testified that Ginsburg was letting out a war chant, some kind of jungle signal to beat poets that that they should begin pelting the troops with blank verse so a guy in the crowd is marching with a girl on his shoulders she's waving an american flag and this seems to really be bothering some frat brothers who come to town in the spirit of fraternity so we kind of get your your standard courtroom drama, the, you know, the judge not paying attention and running riot over everybody's rights and uh, lawyers struggling with ethics and the truth and what they believe and what they can get away with and how, what kind of injustice is going to fall upon their uh, their charges. But then you also just have Hoffman and Rubin and the the various other protesters who serve as foils to them in different ways, kind of all telling different stories. It's extremely Sorkin-y. You know, you have your walk and talks, you have your nonstop banter. You have so much of this story told via one-liners, snappy one-liners and, and snappy montages. And nonetheless, it was just, it, it feels like the most old school movie I watched and loved this year mm-hmm. in terms of just classical filmmaking, in terms of like screwball energy, effectively. Well, without spoiling it, as long as we're talking about endings that make or break movies, I will just say I was having a more elevated experience with <laughs> The Trial of the Chicago 7 until we got to that ending, that choice, which, as I understand it, is not in the court transcripts, but is a Sorkin edition, a creative edition. That one did not go over well with me. But Tasha, it didn't seem to soften your appreciation for the movie it is super super fictionalized uh, <laughs> he essentially took something they tried to do mm-hmm. uh, midway through the the trial and gave it to them as a, a big dramatic moment it's a courtroom drama you expect it to end with a, a big symbolic victory for the people that you're rooting for i recognized i don't know i've resisted the film based on a true story uh, idea most of my professional career because so much of it teaches us exactly the wrong things about history. So much filmmaking based around real stories teaches us that life is very simple and neat and that people's motivations surface in childhood from a single thing that somebody says to them. And then they become very simple ideologues who go forward just 
pursuing that one ideal throughout their lives and nothing else enters the picture. Everything in historical movies has a way of being very neat and very packaged. And normally I resist it full force. I see this as an act of fiction that invites you to look into the reality behind it. Mm -hmm. But as an act of fiction, it's just pretty rousing and satisfying. Yeah, I I agree. I got to say, I I had that feeling with the social network 100%. You know, I think that's his best script. And it's it's also the weirdest matchup and the most fruitful matchup he, a script of his ever got, I think, in terms of a... Director who Fincher, David Fincher, who just took the Social Network in such a in, in such a kind of an interesting sinister direction and took all the quote fun unquote uh, out of the out of the out of the banter. It's it's, it's a that that film is so kind of odd and stimulating even now. Fictional, yes, you know, completely about the I probably yeah, not that much more fictionalized than Trial of the Chicago Seven. I guess the I, which I enjoyed. But I think the, the the I and I may see it a second time someday. But I got to say, the one drag on it for me, in terms of the acting, which is pretty damn good in a lot of cases, Mark Rylance, so many good people. But uh, I don't know if Sasha Baron Cohen is the right Abby Hoffman. I mean, to me, Abby Hoffman, it was like this zigzaggy, crazy, unstable, unpredictable, uh, you know, manic depressive, uh, you know, like to, you know, kind of live wire. And Sasha Baron Cohen is a very methodical, thoughtful, uh, and pretty effective character actor. Who's of course a comedian first, and maybe an actor. You know, he's an actor too, though. And I just think if Abby Hoffman's your most famous face and voice in this movie, f- from the real, from the historical record, it wouldn't have hurt to get somebody a little more in line with the kind of guy he actually was. And I, I don't get that guy at all from what Sasha Baron Cohen's doing and also from the way he's positioned as kind of the, I think, maybe increasingly predictable voice of moral outrage and authority. He's just, yeah. you know, but a lot of it is, you know, the core, I think the more they stick in the courtroom to, in, some, in some cases, yes, a lot of, a lot of the most kind of, alarming stuff that actually happens in Sorkin's dramatization comes from the record, you know, but mm-hmm. I, it's, it's, it's Cohen's performance that prevented me from kind of fully getting into some of the scenes as skillful as he is in many ways. But I don't know. That's just, again, mm-hmm. that's just me getting hung up in a different kind of historical record problem that other people would right. complain about. I don't know. I don't know. For what it's worth, the reason I watched this film in the first place was because I was leading a film club discussion of it for a group of people who are mostly in their, I would say, like late 60s to maybe early 80s. And their biggest objection with it, like they mostly loved the film. They're all in Chicago and they had uh, an emotional connection to the material. They'd lived through it, some of them very closely. At least one of them was an attorney in the district attorney's office when this all was going down. Their big objection was that they felt Jerry Rubin was portrayed as a clown and that that was Mm. insulting and not in any way historically accurate. So you're definitely going to have a different response to this material if you have any sort of like personal connection to it, any sort of uh, historical, like if you are around for any of it, at least enough to have associations with these characters. Much like people today are going to have a very different experience with uh, social network having grown up with Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. Totally. So yeah, Yeah. I, I honestly can't defend that. But as somebody who doesn't really have that that much of a conception of Abby Hoffman, it didn't bother me. Some people really get in Chicago when you when you write about a f- film like this, 
that was shot here a tiny bit. You know, they shot a little bit down on Grant Park and around Printer's Row, and then a lot of most of it was shot elsewhere. But I mean, I got letters from people that were just obsessed with the fact that the courtroom where you spend a lot of time was not the accurate courtroom. It's like, oh, the real courtroom was only, you know, was, was fluorescent lighting and looked like crap. And, you know, it was like 1960s and, blah, and they found this gorgeous, you know, bow arts, you know, kind of thing. It's like, it's all wrong historically. It's like, well, uh, that's a long line you're going to be in for people nitpicking, you know, details like that. Yeah. All right. Real quick, two more titles here. And this is a good, just basic American pairing, right? We've got two versions of maybe what could be a sort of idealized American experience, except one is real life and doesn't really come anywhere close to that ideal. And the other does probably nail it, but that's because every detail of it is controlled by David Byrne. (laughs) That's David (laughs) Byrne's American utopia. You know, when he's in charge and crafting it, the way he wants it, we get something pretty special. Michael, you had this Spike Lee movie at number three. Yeah, I love it. Oh God, I didn't see it until uh, just the other the other week. It was I saw it like two hours before doing uh, trivia spotting, and I was in tears by the second number. I, I just was really, you know. Also, I I think I'd stub my toe, but. Um, <laughs> Trying to do the dances, I assume, Michael. Right? You were trying to recreate <laughs> well, the dances. Big, I had the big suit. You know, I brought. I pulled out the big suit from <laughs> Stop Making Sense. It's just great. I mean, I mean, it's it's uh, there's one line I just loved in it. You know, where he's in in the opening song. I think it's the opening song here, where he's he's doing the brain analysis, and mm-hmm. it's it's kind of it's just a great kind of typical classically great David Byrne performance art rap, but you know he's looking, he's looking, kind of examining this model of the brain as he's singing, and here's the connection to the opposite side, and of course that, you know that that that's such a metaphoric wallop this year, where you know the idea of like connecting to the opposite side wherever you are in America in 2020, it's not going to happen, and no. <laughs> um, but but somehow with Byrne, you're aware of the double meaning of the metaphor. He certainly is, but the music's kind of telling you. It's a, it'll be all right, maybe. You know, this country may get through it, and we may actually figure that out. But I, I just, you know, Spike Lee did a wonderful, clean-lined, uh, intuitively right job in filming this Broadway performance. I think it was a great year, actually, to, you know, between American Utopia and the the version of Hamilton that got everybody going this summer. You know, that's, the, the man, they, they both knew how to do it, and... Uh, it's not easy, and the Heidi Schreck, what's it, what the Constitution means to me, was the third one too. And I don't know for a recovering theater critic like myself from the from the old days, it, it was it was a good those three, but a particularly American Utopia really were just, it's just such a pleasure. Michael, this is this is a pick that just fell out of my top ten in the last couple of days uh, for for reasons we'll get to, but it falls in this group also of a life affirming movies that I kind of glommed onto in a terrible year. I, I would put soul, the Pixar film and Dick Johnson is dead really um, in this group as well, where possibility seemed there again while you're watching this movie, you know, and that's not to say that Spike Lee, of course, and even David Byrne are unaware of the place we're in. I think some of the uh, alterations Byrne makes to his own music and also some of the music he includes, like the Janelle Monet number, bring awareness to that. But yet at the same time, it was one of those film viewing experiences where you could, you could feel like all was not lost while you're watching American Utopia. 
Yeah, it's not just life affirming, it's art affirming. Mm-hmm. It's so yeah. steeped in in the idea that a handful of people coming together in unity can produce something that feels like it was produced by a single person. You know, the the acts of percussion, the acts of dance seen on stage in this film are just a, a marvel of coordination and sophistication. And they feel so comfortable and so natural and so confident. The whole film kind of felt to me like just being picked up by strong hands and cradled hmm. in a way that, you know, people talk about the the desire to go back to the womb. This felt like going back to childhood and just, just being in the hands of somebody so much more capable and stronger than you are. Whether he's singing about the connections that we have with ourselves and with other people or, or how we experience the world, or he's singing that, that defiant, angry Janelle Monet anthem one way or the other he just he feels like america's father who has the answers and and can help us hmm. get through all this what happens is we keep the connections that are useful to us and yes there's a process of pruning and elimination and we, we get rid of a lot of the others until the ones that are left define who we are as a person who we are as people They define how we perceive the world, and the world appears to make some kind of sense to us. And maybe round about that time, we start asking ourselves various questions like, who am I? What do I want? How do I work this? What are those people doing over there? Should I be doing that? Are they looking at me? Are they like me? Should I go over and talk to them? (laughs) Maybe not. Try to figure this out, wondering if there's, you know, wondering if there's a logic to it, and wondering if it's supposed to make some kind of sense. I know sometimes a man is wrong. So I love it too. Probably the most comforting film of the year. I think you are all correct. The most hopeful film of 2020 in terms of both the potential for political change, but also personal change. Did you get that same feeling of hope, Tasha, from your number two, Boy State, or do you like it for another reason? Oh, goodness, no. I, I think Boy State could be the the year's most cynical film in a way, and yet it's so entertaining and lively and fun. It tracks, it's a documentary tracking a social experiment that happens every every year in America. There's Boy State and Girl State. And in the Boy State experiment, um, sponsored by the American Legion, it's a a political gathering where they they put together a thousand 16, 17-year-old boys, um, generally up-and-coming politicians, like social activists, people who are interested in this kind of thing. And they give them a week, and during that week, they build a government. They vote people into office. They produce their own news and their own podcasts. They draft legislation and argue over the legislation. They form political parties. And the filmmakers track a few individuals, a few standout individuals through the entire project. The story itself is just fascinating, just just in-depth and personal. There's a lot of direct-to-camera confessionals straight out of uh, the reality TV playbook where people explain why they did something or how they felt about it. But you also just get to see this absolutely no-stakes contest for who's going to be, quote-unquote, governor of Boys State that year in Texas. 
by the time the experiment's over, somebody's going to be elected and then they're all going to go home. There's no way any of this is going to affect the world. And yet it's an it edge of the seat race <laughs> to see which ideals are going to uh, prosper and which are going to fail. Like the filmmakers maybe shade a little too heavily into like the good guy politics versus the bad guy politics. But really what you see here is a whole bunch of very idealistic kids with very strong opinions finding out that the truth of the American political system is that populism works, covering up your ideals work, appealing to people's patriotism works, and uh, pretty much nothing else does. And you, you see the light going out of their eyes as they learn mm-hmm. all of these horrible, cynical messages. And yet it's such a funny film. It's such a thoughtful film. It's such an entertaining film. It really explains a lot of what's wrong with American politics and a, a lot of what's going to continue to trouble us in America's future. But I I did not spend a single second like bored or disassociated uh, from from the narrative I was seeing. I, I, I felt like I was watching something vitally important for our future the entire mm-hmm. time I was watching it. As to the political views, voice of my speech, sometimes you gotta say what you gotta say in an attempt to win. I think he's a fantastic politician. But I don't think a fantastic politician is a compliment either. We're gonna do shock and awe. It's gonna be awesome. I want y'all to take out your phones and go on Instagram. Everyone, come on. Oh my God. Yeah, I really like it too. I remember struggling a little bit with wanting it to be more of an actual exchange of thoughtful ideas than it is but i also fully recognize that that's that's yeah yeah that that's going to be difficult for two reasons that become very apparent very quickly and that is you can only have so much of a thoughtful exchange of ideas when the number one topic on most of these kids minds the number one idea they're trying to promote is texas seceding followed by you know making sure that nobody takes our guns And at the same time, it is so focused on the horse race, and I wish it wasn't because that's, of course, what the American media gets lost in. But that's also what American politics is all about, right? That is the reality of it. It comes down to who's winning, what tactics, you know, are, are putting them in the lead or they're, they're going further down in the polls. So I think it, I think it ultimately does reflect a reality that's maybe a sad one, but that's what the documentary probably should do. That said, that Houston teen who becomes kind of the star of the movie, Steven Garza, that he has any of the success he has in this movie is somehow very inspiring to me at the same time. Well, and that's Adam, that's yeah. the the good guy politician that they kind of posit, yes. right? And and boy, I this one Tasha just caught up with it because um heard it was going to be on your list. It pretty much squashed my good vibe buzz that I had gotten off soul <laughs> and and you know, all these other films I've been talking about as being life affirming. I sit down with this and it's like Oh, all hope is gone. Now, part of that is the intent of the documentary, right? Uh, I think. And also, honestly, part of it is that it reminded me the the worst thing about being a 17-year-old boy is that you're often shuffled into spaces where there is no one else around you but 17-year-old boys. And that, 
and that from my own, it was like PTSD. Like that is, that is hell. And we sit in that space quite a bit in this movie. Now that speaks to another element where, you know, a more serious issue I maybe had with it. And it's tied to the, the good guy politician angle is obviously most viewers of this movie are going to be politically aligned and emotionally aligned with Stephen Garza. Right. And I was as well. I almost, the challenge for Boys State would have been to find some humanity in what otherwise register as little monsters. And I think you get a glimmer of that in the one kid, I forget his name now, Rob, I think, who starts Mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about how, well, I've been hiding my ideals because I know that's what you have to do. And there's a level of self-awareness there. But I I did feel there was a lot of... Here we go. Documentary ethics, Adam. <laughs> there was yep. there was a lot I of letting these letting these underage kids who are clearly products of their homes hang themselves on camera for our, you know, misery, but also delight a little bit. And it's just I don't know how the filmmakers would have done that, but to to kind of find what makes those kids tick beyond the the marching orders they've been raised in. And seeing them as individuals a little bit more might have made it a little more interesting to me and maybe honestly a little more hopeful. I mean, that's what was so depressing to me is like, yeah, Steven's great to root for. Glad he made it as far as he did. But but that's a, you know, that's a Pollyannish thing to to hang your hat on at the end of Boys State. Yeah, that's that's the exchange of ideas, I think, that gets lost because they're so focused on the aspect of who's winning and who's losing, unfortunately. But But I do like that one character in particular that that you mentioned, or I should say, not a character in the context of of this film, of course. But we're talking about throughout the show, this idea of of ethics in documentary and blurring lines between reality and fiction and the hand that the filmmaker plays in it. I was watching the movie the whole time thinking, is Steven Garza possibly even getting to the role that he is in the movie because a camera's on him? Mm. At, At what point did they decide to follow these people or were they following them from the beginning? And the fact that he's got a camera following him around all the time, is that influencing other students to actually, sure, you know, uh, uh, see him in a, in a different way? I, I don't know, but there, there's a lot of fascinating questions at the core of Boys State, Tasha's number two of the year. And it sounds like, Josh, the way you're framing it, a good 2020 double feature just make sure you watch boy state first and chase it with american utopia please please i'm gonna go watch american utopia right now after we're done i think to get that out of my <laughs> okay. system i mean i think you should probably watch american utopia after everything <laughs> yes. this year it's just gonna keep feeling better i will the one thing i do want to say about the the cynical and sad messages of boy state is the film itself could be a corrective for them you know watching this movie was a, a just a, a really trenchant reminder of how politicians try to manipulate us, mm. how all of the the dog whistles and the calls to emotional response over intellectual response that dominate politics are effective and, and work on us. And it feels like an invitation to examine that kind of thing, to examine why it's true and to to fight it. To, to fight it, not just in a, this affects other people, but I'm too good for it. The real problem is those people over there. But to accept the degree to which we're all manipulable and that we're all a little a little involved in this same system and kind of coming under the same flags and how we all need to fight it. Yeah. Okay. Two more films to talk about between us, the consensus two films of the year. The first film here that made all four of our lists, a movie where we have a filmmaker in Kelly Reichert 
who is working in a similar milieu, I'd say, to Chloe Zhao and Nomadland, but formally very different, obviously, than Zhao. And the film in question is First Cow, one of the movies all of us probably saw in a theater before COVID hit, and we were all confined to our home. So I've got it at number two. Michael, you've got it at number two. Josh, you've got it at number three. Tasha, a little further down on the list, but it's there. Number eight for you, I think. Is Mm -hmm. that correct? Okay. So as I said, made all four of our lists. Let's go ahead and start, Michael, with you. This is a movie, I don't know if you had a chance to rewatch, but one you certainly saw many, many months ago back in, I think, early March when the film came out. What's lingered with you about First Cow? Oh, God. I love that film. I mean, I mean, until until I saw Small Axe, at least three of them out of the five, uh, this is my favorite work of the year. And uh, Kelly Reichert has just, has, made, has just sort of doggedly made the movies she wanted to make better and better and better. And, and she started out with huge talent right away. But I, I just think that creating a, a slice of the American past – uh, that we haven't seen before, and and just kind of examining a really kind of uh, uh, community that's both uh, close knit and extremely stifling and racist and and exclusionary and everything else. It's again, you're not hitting one note; you're hitting a chord that is has to be a little bit unsettling because it's telling you how the American West got quote settled. You know who was on the short end of that stick. When you look at the center of this movie, which is this uh, this unlikely friendship between the characters played by John Majaro and Orion Lee, one a Chinese immigrant uh, who's uh, kind of on the lam, uh, but has a very good idea for what he can do with the oily cakes that are one of the specialties of the the camp cook character played by John Majaro. You know, it's just a great kind of eccentric fable of of American capitalism and. You know, and of course, about what what a cow can do for you if if you kind of milk it on the sly. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I just feel like uh, you know, American capitalism has been milking cows on the sly ever since. So you know, ever since the 1820s. So, but it, it's it's just a it's just a wonderful kind of organic whole work. And I always you know, I talked to I talked to Reichert about it in March, and then resaw the the film uh, in July when it finally got released. I think uh, digitally. And you know, it's just one of those movies that came got lost, just got like zonked by the by the lockdown in March. And I felt so protective of it. Like, God, people got to see this thing. You know, if they don't know Kelly Reichert, this is a great place to start. If they do know Kelly Reichert's work, it's just a great, not a summation of themes or anything, but it's just a great extension of everything she's been great at so far. And you know, she will, I hope, continue to experiment and find. Uh, corners of uh, you know she loves Oregon you know she all so many so many Oregon stories but you know she's got a whole world in front of her and I just hope she's I hope she's got the 20 30 years at least of a, of a good solid career behind you know ahead of her so we can keep kind of reaping the benefits but I'm I'm just really I'm, I'm beguiled by this thing sobered a little bit because it is sad and uh, but in the end just just moved and that's just a, that's just a nice place for a movie to 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 take you. I guess I'm the odd person out here in that I didn't see it in a theater. I didn't see it on a big screen. And I wonder if I had, if it would be higher up on my list because the visuals are such an important part of this movie. I found myself actively distracted from the narrative at various points because I was just paying so much attention to the texture of the clothing, to the texture <laughs> of, of hand spun fabric, what it looks like when it's been dragging through mud. 
this is a very muddy movie. This is a very grubby movie. This is not your Aaron Sorkin polished, sanitized, uh, shined up version of history. This It feels real at every point. And I, Kelly Reichert just, I think, excels at creating these very textured dramas that you, you can taste the mud in your mouth mm-hmm. throughout so much of this movie. It almost feels like you can taste the oily cakes and you can tell that the people are excited to eat these things just because the taste of honey is so much more pleasant than the taste of mud. <laughs> There's just an immersiveness to her work which is not something that we're used to getting, I think, from these very small stories. Something like Nomadland or something big and loud and flashy like Tenet. We talk about being immersive because something that overwhelms your senses can make you feel like you're there. But Breaker just kind of excels at telling stories that make you feel like you're there because Mm -hmm. every tiny detail is so precise and so thought through. There's one really interesting distinction I hadn't thought of between that film, uh, between First Cow and Nomadland, which is Nomadland is all about the, the enormity of the sky and how gorgeous it is. And it's sort of like a comfort for people in need, you know. And arguably, occasionally, a little too gorgeous, I think. But uh, I agree. Uh, First Cow doesn't give you that same sense of sky because it is that is a forest picture. You know, that's people in a really dense part of the Oregon wilderness, and you don't get a lot of kind of visual open canvas relief. Yeah, it's a, it's a different, it's a, an entirely different kind of color palette, and uh, you know, is. Neither one of those films is 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 trying to work it like a documentary because they're both they both have it's like poetic realism and it's, and that again that doesn't mean that they're remotely similar in kind of what the sensibilities are it just means that you can go you can start with these sort of very real uh, and as you say Tasha very textured and carefully wrought details about just the hats and the, you know, and, and certain lines are just wonderful. I love the fact that everybody tastes these oily cakes and they're reminded of home, but everybody's coming from somewhere else, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, uh, man, I never wanted to make latkes so bad. It's just watching this. It look like <laughs> well, little teeny latkes, you know? But, uh, yeah, no, this is, they're just great. Po- poetic realism is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a buzz phrase. You can use it for all kinds of things, literary or poetic or cinematic, but it's just, you know, when you see people like these, these directors who really have it and know how to tell the story their way. And in a lot of ways, it's a lot less, it's not enough plot machinery for most people, for some people, let's say it's just not enough. You know, I mean, I, I, but I, I didn't, if you, if you respond personally enough to a movie like first call, like I did, uh, and apparently we all did. You know, you just think, well, I, I don't care if it's not enough for other people. I just, I need to just sort of mm-hmm. try to describe why this thing affected me or why it, it makes do with the amount of conventional story it is telling. Well, it's not just a forest picture, Michael. It's also a faces picture. And I think that's where the aspect ratio choice comes into play, going with that Academy ratio that doesn't stretch out the faces. And Kelly Reichert talked about this on Film Spotting with the two of us. It allows you to see the the entire face in the frame rather than kind of squishing them. And it does de-emphasize that kind of grandeur of 
the landscape because you are so focused. I think that's why even you're so focused not only on the face and the subtlety of the reactions and the nuances of that, but Tasha, you are also paying attention to the the mud, the texture on their face, in their hair, what they're wearing on their heads, what what they're what they're wearing around them in the frame. You notice that because it's not getting obscured by everything around them in the landscape. And I think that is a key element here to this movie's success. It's also why maybe it would have been better. And of course, we can say this about every movie, really, but especially this one, it would have been so much better had you been able to see it in the theater. And maybe you would have had an even stronger reaction to it, because I think it's already being made in a format that kind of feels too much like you're used to looking at on your computer screen at home versus the big widescreen. Being able to see those faces blown up you know, on a, on a movie screen, at least on a, on a larger screen uh, with that expanse, I think probably would have would have heightened that that sense of immersiveness even more. So really the ideal double bill there is first cow with maybe Robert Eggers, the lighthouse, just to kind of show you. you know, <laughs> yeah. Really box so many, in, so many similarities between those two. The thing about Reichert's camera, you're yeah, it's not looking at the grandeur, it's more in the weeds. And I think that's part of the detail, everydayness oriented aspect of her filmmaking in these period pieces. You saw it in Meek's Cutoff too, and all those little period elements that you guys have been citing. That's why I really wanted to get another look at First Cow before we did this show. I wasn't able to, and then I remember, you know, I realized that I remember this film so vividly from months and months ago because of the care and attention to those elements we've been talking about. I, I can... I can picture myself sitting in Cookie and King Lou's shack. You know, I can hear the squelching mud, those squealing yeah. pigs. It's it's so vivid. It's like I, I watched it yesterday. So I really think I've liked Reichert's Oliver stuff, but I think she's at her best. Some, there's something that comes alive when she's in a certain period of American history. I think Meek's cutoff is her masterpiece. And so, yeah, I'm with you, Michael. I, I just hope I'd follow her anytime, any place, but I kind of hope she stays in the past. <laughs> Here's listener Brian Sweeney. He says, I think it is Kelly Reichert's best film yet. No Small Feet and alongside Nomadland is the best American movie of the year. Both films are about people who have been beaten down by capitalist society trying to survive and get by. They are also about America, the idealistic lie of the American dream and the cruel reality that so many people have to face as they try to scrape by. On top of that, both films also capture the natural beauty of this country so well. It also has two of the best performances of the year in John Majaro and Orion Lee. Three, if you count Eve the cow, which I do, Brian says. <laughs> I wish I could have seen this in a theater, but I am so glad to have seen it at all. So great, great thoughts there. I think, you know, Brian says beaten down by this capitalist society. I mean, they're they're active participants in it. They're they're willing participants. The issue is, I think the movie suggests once you become part of that system, what compromises are you willing to make morally, ethically? And I think she basically is saying, Reichert, that there's no way around those compromises. They're just inherent to the to the system itself. And another story here, I would say, of an artist though, Josh. This is a real art, you know, versus commerce tale in in Cookie, John Majaro. He just wants to make the best oily cakes he can, right? This is uh, true. With the best ingredients. He's the indie you filmmaker know? back in 1820. <laughs> That's, That's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. That brings us to the number one film of 2020. Really, according to all of us, we'll get into the wrinkle here in a second. And of course, Tasha is going to have some explaining to do with her <laughs> take on this choice. But I think we'll go ahead and let Aisha Harris, friend of the show from Pop Culture Happy Hour, do the honors. 
Hey, Adam and Josh, this is Aisha Harris from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. And my pick for my favorite movie of 2020 has to be Steve McQueen's Small Axe. There are just so many things I love about this movie. The soundtrack is killer. The imagery is indelible. Each character is distinctly rendered over the course of this one night at a London house party. And especially in a year where we've been deprived of the kind of intimacy McQueen shows here, it was just such a pleasant experience to bask in the glow of Black characters living and feeling free. So that's my pick, Steve McQueen's Small Axe. Happy New Year. So Aisha notably just called it Small Axe. She didn't single out Lover's Rock the way I did my number one choice. Michael, you did your number one. Josh, you did your number one. I was going to sort of correct her or at least amend that a little bit because she did focus exclusively on Lover's Rock and wasn't speaking of small acts in its entirety. But Tasha, that's really for you, how you see this compendium of films. You see him as five connected films. And for you, it's not just Lover's Rock, it's small acts. That's the best of the year. I, I did just put Small Axe down as my my favorite of the year. And if we're going to try to justify that in any way, if we're going to squabble about it, I will note that in between the recording of last week's episode and this week's uh, episode, the LA Film Critics Circle declared Small Axe as a project, the number one film of the year. So I, I, my LA peeps have my back on this one. <laughs> my reason for the take, like uh, often when we cheat in these categories, which we very much do josh i'm looking at you i think that we cheat in our we cheat because we love we cheat because we we want to push more films onto these lists and make sure that they get recognition but in this case it just doesn't feel like a cheat to me i feel like each of the small axe movies in turn have their significant flaws i think mangrove is the most polished and complete of the stories, but I, I think it, that it does drag at times and it does have a lot of what feels like loose ends. Some of the shorter ones like Alex Weedle and An Education feel to me like they should have been full length films, that there's so much untold story there that makes them feel incomplete. Every one of these chapters to me felt a little incomplete in and of itself, but seen together as a single project, which, you know, he, he put it out there under a single project name, which set off a huge debate about whether this is actually television instead of filmmaking. To me, it's not television. To me, it's one big project. It's, it's tracking this community of West Indian immigrants and the children of immigrants over the course of literal generations in London, in how most particularly they deal with the the white establishment and the people in power who target them, who victimize them, who bring racist anger to bear against them over and over and over. And it's about the development of that community. It's about the development of protest. It's about the development of voices. It's about the development of collective power over time. And all of these incredibly interesting side stories, whether it's into one boy's incarceration or one boy's education or one group of people's arrest and uh, prosecution, or this one house party, you know, in each case, we're delving into the specificities of a particular place and time. But overall, it just tells one big story about a community over time. And to me, it, it works best and most exquisitely as a single story. Well, Tasha, I have a corollary that, you know, has helped me think about this as its own entire project, which I'd agree with you. It is. And that's Decalogue. Krzysztof Kieslowski's, you know, 1989 series made for Polish television, 10 short films. And I think this is 
something quite similar, both in its sense of scope, I think also in the moral conviction brought to bear in in this project, and just the awesome artistry. I mean, the fact that this is absolutely cinematic in so many ways. All of these films, I and I think Lovers Rock, the reason I have it at number one is because to me it's the most cinematic, along with some other reasons. The the kind of cheat I did for this, Tasha, is that I I had Mangrove at number 10, Lovers Rock at one. Those are my two favorite ones. And uh, I think this is a monumental project that should define 2020 at the movies or in the movies or on the movies, however we did the movies this year. Small acts should be the way we remember this year. And Lovers Rock, I think it particularly stood out not only for that cinematic element. We talked about the editing, Adam, and the cinematography when we did our CFCA Ballots show. But I really like how it's distinct from the other films in that this is, as Aisha talked about, seeing the subjects, the people in this film living and feeling free. And that stands such apart from the other installments in the anthology. Now, it's not naive. We we sense there's that one shot outside of the party of the guys down the street, the white guys mm-hmm. who hurl the racial slurs at one of the characters. I think at one point we see a squad car go by and kind of the whole mood of the party just dampens a little bit. So this isn't naive, but for the most part, this is a bubble that is refusing to be punctured by the oppression outside. This is a movie. It's free from narrative. I love that it wasn't going to be a real narrative. It's just a hangout movie for one night. It's free from main characters. We get to know so many people in little snippets and it's free from whiteness. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. remarkably free from whiteness in a way that so many of these other stories of 2020 are not. And now I'm getting into territory. Adam and I talked a little bit when I chose the 40-year-old version uh, earlier on my list about how that challenged me in how I respond to black art. And so this is tricky territory here. Like, you know, if I put Lover's Rock at number one, what are my reasons for that? What am I responding to? And one reason, I, I guess I just love that there, I feel kind of like an outsider here. And that's where I, I feel like I should feel <laughs> in this movie. And yet I still have it as my best film of the year. I mean, we go to the movies to go somewhere we haven't been before. And, and a lot of us haven't, you know, didn't, most of us didn't grow up or, or come of age in any anything like a, the Caribbean, uh, you know, immigrant community in West London or any part of London. And this is not a project. Steve McQueen's project with all the different writers he worked with is not one that's that's really bending over backwards to, quote, explain anything about this about this, the various communities and recent periods of, of London history. It's not really, it doesn't have that sort of egregious heft work. let me dumb it down for you people, uh, you know, kind of imperative. It's just really just, how are we going to tell this story now uh, about about what happened then? And, and so much of it is about this egregious amount of racism and institutionalized police brutality and all of it. And then Lover's Rock is in many ways, although it's not not an unfraught hour. I mean, there's a lot of sexual danger in it, uh, and, as well as a lot of, you know, kind of gorgeous uh, sexual and romantic possibility. That's the whole vibe of it. And it's all in sort of the music. It's all in, you know, the reggae and the dub and the, you know, kung fu fighting and just watching people. It's like it's like an hour-long version of these Olivier Assayas house party scenes in the French movies, you know. 
And uh, I don't know. I just I loved it. I I, I couldn't I couldn't wait. I cannot wait to see it again. And I just mm-hmm. think I I Tasha in terms of like what you're saying about Mangrove, it's more conventional for sure. But again, that was a legal story. It took place like in 1970. Yes. Uh, uh, and the trial came, you know, shortly after that, and it, it's got many parallels with the Chicago, the trial of the Chicago Seven, and I just found I found Mangrove kind of an infinitely superior version of a pretty traditionally well-made classical piece of like, okay, we're going to show you a community for an hour, and then we're going to have this inciting incident it comes right out of you know real you know recent history, and then we'll do an hour courtroom drama, and every part of that I just dug, I dug it. And it felt honest and true to me, and and then you can't say that about all drama. And I, you know, I, I felt that way about half of the Sorkin movie. Although I enjoyed Chicago Seven, but Mangrove seemed to me like okay, now we're talking. You know, here's another listener insight: Brady Larson, same spelling, but not any relation to Josh Larson. With Lovers Rock, Steve McQueen manages to create a film rich with social ideas that never has to spell its thesis out. Instead, he lets the radiant euphoria of this house party and its fantastic music do all the talking. The film's radical mission is to give its black characters what their government continues to deny them, security, love, peace of mind, a space to display their culture, and a chance to express themselves joyfully. It's an intoxicating plea for black dignity that also happens to be a universal love letter to something many of us probably took for granted before March of 2020, the thrill of gathering together in confined spaces that intimacy that (laughs) aisha was talking about mcqueen has made the house party movie as transcendental cinema very well said brady certainly can't express it any more succinctly or eloquently i will just add in terms of pure cinema that silly games sequence is going to come up when we do our rap party josh when Mm -hmm. we share our favorite moments of the year whether it's scenes of the year overall whether it's music moments or both and that that moment in particular, when the music cuts out, when the DJ cuts the music, and the scene continues for an extended period of time. I want that thing. The camera just kind of getting lost in the rapture of the dancers moving together and singing. That that was my most take your breath away moment of the movie year, which is why it's here at number one. And I agree with everything you're saying, Tasha, in terms of it feeling like it it truly is part of this this larger whole. I guess I feared if I put small acts as my number one, even though I, I should point out full disclosure, there's two I still haven't seen. I haven't seen Alex Weedle or Education. Then Josh would be all over me for cheating and picking five films <laughs> at my number one. So I might, so have, I definitely, might have allowed it in this case. Well, I should be. <laughs> I'm perfectly willing to uh, to take Josh's attack. I will I will say when we recorded our next picture show best of the small X films didn't feature into my list. I had a slightly different list at that point because I hadn't watched an education at that point. And I, while I did not feel there was any chance that it was going to be so terrible that it would somehow torpedo the whole project. Mm-hmm. I, I was fairly confident that small X was going to end up on top of my final list. Just as a, a good critic, I couldn't do it in good conscience without watching, being, sure. you know, without having been certain that I watched all five of them. Yeah. But as much as, uh, Lover's Rock has emerged as the the most celebrated uh, installment in the the Small Axe series. I honestly think uh, An Education and Alex Weedle touched me more. 
Hmm. They're definitely less transcendent. They're definitely uh, darker and certainly more about that kind of uh, systemic oppression and abuse and overreach by the by a racist system they're not going to give you the uplift that you're so desperately looking for in 2020 but as character pieces they're excellent all five of these movies taken together are also just an an amazing study in language in slang in ergo in like a shared community's way of speaking among each other watching these films with the subtitles on and just studying over the decades kind of the evolution of speech is just Mm -hmm. a fascination all entirely on its own yeah Yeah. and not just speech repeated gestures and and certain mannerisms that that you can see and trace throughout all five films. I love that well, phrase. It, it, I think it turns up in, I forget if it's red, red, white, and blue or mangrove, where it's as crooked as a damn ram's horn, you know, and <laughs> yeah. it's, it, describing sort of the, you know, the, the, the system, you know, the, the white majority they're up against, you know, at the time. And that's the other great thing about it. I mean, McQueen is so sharp about making sure that each distinct moment of a white oppression is not played like I hate to ding a recently deceased director, but it's not handled the way somebody like Alan Parker would handle it. You know, <laughs> come in with whom the hammer. You know, it's more just like painfully realistic and very very mundane in the sort of every the banality of evil. You know what I mean? It's not that's that's what everyday racism feels like you know and then and then also just to see john boyega kind of go to town after kind of being a, a bit trapped in the in, in the franchise you know uh for which he's known um it, he's you know that's an actor just like relishing the opportunity to work on the steve mcqueen project and yeah i don't know it's just what a, to, to see those first three in a run at, at the end of a pretty goddamn tough year you know, hmm. where you just see this. This is just this is how it's done. And again, we're, we come back to poetic realism, and that, that apparently that's the year. This was the year for it. We just needed it more than we ever needed anything else this year. And Kelly Reichardt and Chloe Zhao and Steve McQueen gave it to us in very different ways. Yeah, Boyega just owns Red, White, and Blue. He's he's just you can't take your, his your eyes off him there. Adam, you mentioned the mannerisms, and this ties into what you said about the subtitles. Tasha is the expression of disgust. So many sucks teeth. Sucks teeth. If you have sucks teeth. Yeah, if you have the subtitles on, that's and it's like it's this like this, you'd almost miss it if you weren't watching very closely without the subtitles, that it's this little way of dismissing what another character has just said or showing displeasure. And mm-hmm. I, I was thankful to be able to watch the first couple of installments with the subtitles because then I think I did watch Alex Weedle via a screener where I, I either they weren't available or I couldn't get that to work. And so not only had I thankfully had three films to kind of be able to acclimate myself to some of the lingo, but that's also about a, a kid who grows up in a different area, right? And comes into this community and he himself doesn't know all the, the slang or the speech patterns. So he's kind of educating himself as I was kind of like just starting to catch up. So it was a perfect time, but I would encourage people if they haven't started watching these yet to use the subtitles. And and that circles back, Tasha, to what you were saying about education being so good. What that did for me was really clarify the larger project. One of the larger projects of Small Axe as a whole is to chronicle the education of so many of these characters from obviously they know the racism and discrimination they're experiencing, but what each of them in each of these installments comes to learn is how 
they are going to be part of the resistance. And what activism, how they move from being aggravated to becoming activists. And I think you can see a character in each installment um, make that sort of progression, which is kind of the, the motivating movement of small acts as a whole, not only for those people, in for the characters in each installment, but for us now watching now to to kind of carry that over into 2020 where you know the same shit we saw going down in mangrove on the streets and during those protests we saw outside our windows here in chicago right so it's absolutely the series of the year for that reason as well for the way it applies to what's going on now and how we need to be educated and choose how we're going to respond lovers rock slash small acts our collective number one film of 2020. If you would like to review our top 10 picks, you can go to filmspotting.net slash lists and find them there. We will be back in a couple of weeks with our final thoughts on the movie year, our 2020 wrap party. I'm thinking about all these life-affirming moments we got in cinema in 2020, the transcendental moments, and I'm already working on my montage of the best dance scenes of the year. Because yeah. it's 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 American Utopia, it's this, and there are many, many others. Also on that show, we'll announce the winner of the 2020 Golden Brick Award. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. Michael Phillips has a vote. Josh Larson gets a vote. I get a vote. Tasha gets a vote as well. Michael, Tasha, it's so disappointing that we didn't get to see you in person like we normally would. But I'm still extremely grateful we got to see you and we got to hear you. Thank you for coming back on the show i'll take it it was good to see you all again and uh you know this is the next best thing you know it's uh, uh, uh next year let's uh, hope for the old ways yep absolutely i only showed up for this because i assumed that josh was going to ship us all boxes of uh, homemade treats <laughs> to parallel <laughs> the way. experience we had in the studio last time put the mailing addresses in the chat and they'll they'll head your way <laughs> i'm i'm gonna hold you to that otherwise i'm not turning up in 2021 <laughs> oh boy I, can can is there even going to be any good cinema in 2021 how Maybe not. How could there possibly be? It does seem like the least we can do. So, Josh, uh, get get Debbie on that, I guess. <laughs> all if right. She's, if she's willing. <laughs> well, I may have eaten them all already, but I'm sure we okay. can whip up another batch. So, Michael Phillips, promote anything you would like to promote. Where can our listeners find your work and follow you? Oh, you know, chicagotribune.com slash movies. And uh, I'm still doing the weekly contributions to Soundtrack, the film music program over at Classical WFMT 98.7 here in Chicago. And, you know, that's it. I'm not going to, you know what I'm You know what I'm not doing this week? Writing a stinking word about movies. <laughs> I'm taking a week off, you know. Congratulations. I just, Love it. vacation. Yeah. And uh, I hope you guys uh, stay healthy until yeah. I actually see you. You too. Well learned. You can, of course, follow Michael at Phillips Tribune on Twitter. You can also, if you're a film spotting patron, you can see him and maybe even be on his team in our monthly trivia spotting events. Michael, I think your team won the first one. You haven't won since. Yes, I won. Yeah. I won the first one, and I will never win again because of that that infernal Griffin Newman from L.A. The vo- he has has he ever gotten a question wrong? <laughs> New York. He- He's a New York-based actor, Michael. You can't write him off as just an L.A. guy. He's not. I can't even malign L.A. and, and still. Uh, 
No. Nope. Well, anyway, <laughs> he's got everything. He's got he's got the stuff. He is hard to beat. Oh, he is. But I he can is promise impossible. anybody on my team just a solid third or fourth place winner. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Tasha Robinson, where can our listeners follow you? Well, I'm the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. More and more, I'm not writing so much about film as I am curating and uh, training people and commissioning things and uh, just like trying to improve criticism 15 people at a time. But I'd like to get back into writing a little more in 2021. We'll see if I get that done. Um, if so, you can uh, follow me crowing about having accomplished writing a review here and there on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And I am one of the co-hosts of the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a recent release and contextualizing it with an older film that it in some way resembles our comments on. We also did our top five. You're going to get a diff- slightly different top five over there than over here and a lot more conversation about a lot of these films. So if you're unconvinced, you can join us over there and we'll talk your ear off about them too. Awesome. Thanks so much, Michael and Tasha. Thank you. Thank you. All right. If you want to connect with Adam and I on social media, we are on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And that's where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. What film from an emerging director should win this year's Golden Brick Award? I'll be voting. Adam will be voting. Michael will be voting. Tasha will be voting. And you will, too. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year, everyone. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.